Hey, you got Fortnite in my horizon. Triangle Squared Advice Hour. Well, hello and welcome to Triangle Square to PlayStation Podcast. I'm your host, Brett Beck, and alongside me is Chris the Bruised Canoeer Figs. Ugh. At this point, I'm just hoping that it catches on. Your mom starts writing it in your Christmas cards. Yeah, you, you, your father just comes down and says it. I'm going to infect the whole family with the with the virus, the, the Bruised Canoe virus. Oh. It'll be the last of us. Hey, Chris. How are you, buddy? I'm fine, Brett. How are you doing? I'm doing well. If you're new to the show, of course, we are a PlayStation podcast that talks about the landscape of gaming from the point of view of being PlayStation fans. But of course, we talk about everyone, Nintendo, Microsoft, PC, Steam, whoever it is that needs talking about, what we like about what they're doing, what we don't. Uh, Today, here in a little bit, this is going to be a slightly different episode for us. We recently, last week, did our own Game of the Year, and we wanted to kind of turn that over to you and let you guys uh, share some of your Game of the Year as well as games that you felt like didn't get enough love last year. So this episode is going to be structured a little differently than usual. We're going to spend longer on the community's take than usual, but we'll eventually get into Naughty Dog talking about how they're leaving some of their series behind. We're going to talk about PlayStation and this weird thing going on where there was a report early this morning that PSVR 2 numbers were slashed in half and then Sony denying that. We'll talk about that. Final Fantasy 7 Day in Japan, as well as, uh, unfortunately, some uh, game delays, as has become normal. But we're going to start this show off the way that we always do, and that is just checking in on what Chris and I have been playing so that we can, A, give each other ideas for things to play next that we might be having fun with, and B, kind of give you guys a thought of what we're enjoying and why. So Chris, as always, going to start with you, buddy. What have you been playing this week? Oof, so I've been um, continuing to grind on Marvel Snap. Excellent game. This season's getting a lot harder. It's really frustrating, but that's okay. I like the challenge. Um, Playing Persona 4 Golden and still working my way through that. And then the big the big game of the week has been Square Enix's Forspoken. <laughs> yeah. So I think Forspoken is going to be our point of uh, contact on this, where we're actually playing the same thing. But I know we're doing so in a vastly different way, uh, because I've played almost exclusively Forspoken uh, since its release. And with that in mind, I know that I am much further. I am at the final conflict of the game, as far as I can tell. Uh, That is a guesstimation, but I am fairly far in the game. So with that in mind, I know that me and you are going to have differing opinions on it. Um, I think for the sake of conversation, it's worth pointing uh, to a conversation we had slightly before recording as you were turning Forspoken off, where you asked pretty candidly (laughs) when, how far or how long until I get to the fun part. And I know that uh, what you're going off of is some of what Velvet Thunder and I and other people I've seen on social media who are enjoying the game, talking about how movement throughout the world is fun. And I told you that you're right up to the point where you get out in the open world and really get some freedom within the game. So with that in mind, we know that that's kind of coming up for you. So it's early days. But so far, initial thoughts on the first couple of hours of the game Clearly, it's a slow burn. Would you agree with that? I would agree with that. 
I guess my take on the game is weird because I think it's fun so far, but I also don't think it's good. And I don't know how to square that with myself. But like, I look at this game and I'm like, this, I, I feel like a lot of the stuff that I see in it would have been bad in the PS3 era, let alone in the PS5 era. But that doesn't mean the game's not fun. Does that make any sense? <laughs> I think I do, but out of curiosity, like what are the examples that you've brushed up against so far that you kind of come to mind that scream like, oh, this probably would have already started feeling, I'm assuming you mean bad as in dated, or like it would have been considered dated game design even in PS3 era, late PS3 yeah. maybe? Yeah, I mean, some of the dialogue, obviously we're not going to harp on that. I think it sucks. I don't, it's fine if you like it. I understand that. Um Stuff like the facial animations, I think, are really bad. I think the open world is dead. Like, I think, but I, and I think that's, you know, depending on perspective, it's supposed to be that way. Um, so it's, mm-hmm. it depends on what you think. But I just, I don't know if it's supposed to be that way is a good excuse for it, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Like, if it's a choice you made, then it was a bad choice. Is, yeah. is kind of what you mean. Like just because you did it and it was on purpose doesn't inherently make it good. Right. Even if it exactly. was, uh, you know, the intent was there to be that way. Yeah. Um, okay. So I mean, that's one of my big issues with it. Um, and then I, so far, like I don't, I think the control scheme is just bad. Like right now, unless I'm doing something wrong, the fact that it takes me like, three button presses just to dodge roll I find kind of insane um, but you know there's still the factor that I'm still learning the game there's tons of stuff I could just be wrong about um, but right now those are my biggest complaints as you get into more combat because uh, I'll tell you dodging is incredibly easy in this game I actually wish it was a little more challenging because it's a slight evolution of Final Fantasy 15, uh, where basically all you've got to do is it's kind of like a mixture of Final Fantasy 15 and Callisto, where oh, you've just got yeah, to great. hit circle to initiate your magic parkour. And as long as you're holding left or right when an attack comes in while you have circle pressed, you're going to pretty much automatically dodge it. There's a little right. bit more finesse dodging that's required where you'll have to do it like back to back and you have to actually tap circle each time. Um, but with that in mind, it's not a super complicated... Like, it's better than 15 because it's not an auto-attack game. You do have to actually hit the button for each attack, and you have to dodge with each dodge. But it's still very forgiving in its dodge windows. Uh, and so it's a clear evolution from 15. I actually think... This might ruffle some feathers. I think this game, in some ways, is more imaginative and has better use of certain ideas, like its open world uh, and how to traverse amongst it than Final Fantasy 15 did. But Final Fantasy 15 Uh had this really interesting thing where I enjoyed Final Fantasy 15 for what it was as well. But I honestly think this game and Final Fantasy 15 are on par. And two things are going for Final Fantasy over Forspoken. Known quantity. It's a name that people know and it's hyped up and people are excited for it. So it doesn't get the same kind of critique as a new IP does. And then secondarily, Uh time. 
because Final Fantasy uh, 15 did come out in 2017 and we are in 2023. And so what might have been an eight or a nine or whatever it was, you know, in 2020, in 2017 is not going to be viewed as favorably, even though I think it does some things even better than 15. Um, so with all the, all that in mind, I think uh, it's interesting you might agree with this, though you're you're not quite far enough to see it all. Because I like some of it, I agree. Right, the game is not the best looking game. There's some really pretty aspects, and then there's some kind of odd looking aspects. Facial animations are really good sometimes, and then really off other times. The performances are all mostly fine. I mean, really, there's not been a, a voice actor that's just completely thrown me out. I don't think the dialogue is off for a. How would I say this? A westernized JRPG. This feels in line with a lot of, and yeah. it is cheesy, a little cringy, but it's done so with this sincerity that works in the same way that other Japanese, you know, JRPGs do for me. Kind of like Kingdom Hearts. There's a lot of lines that are very obviously <laughs> over the top, but it's kind of the charm of the series. Um, but the best way I can describe it is that the big hit is that since this is a console exclusive and it's Square Enix and it's been given this billing of a AAA game, I think it's being viewed at through the lens of what was expected of a new AAA IP, which is a fair assumption. But the game feels like it should have been more judged and marketed as though it were a new AA IP. Kind of like... Valkyria Elysium that just came out was a game that uh-huh. didn't get crazy high reviews okay. either, but it didn't get as much negative press because it didn't get as much push from Sony and all this stuff going on just because of the nature of Project Athia being a PS5 reveal window title that had a lot of hype behind it. I think this is a perfectly fine double A JRPG that's being looked at yeah. and expected to be a triple A JRPG, uh, which I think is what we'll get with Final Fantasy 16 later this year. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I don't know because it's one of those things. Like I said, like I think it's being reviewed pretty harshly, but I don't necessarily disagree yeah. with where it's landed on Metacritic either. Like. Like it's not a perfect game. It's not something where I could fathom like white knighting for it on Twitter or something along those lines where like I'm fighting for people to remember. It's exactly what I said in the Discord. It's a game that I might drop pretty soon or I might platinum and never think about again. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't think it's this like, it's not up to quote unquote Sony quality. You know what I mean? This is very much exactly what you said. It's a double-A game with fine dialogue. It's pretty solid parkour gameplay. And in my opinion, just not a good story so far. I do I do find Cuff and Faye annoying. I really don't like Faye. Um, I think she's just kind of mean. <laughs> Which, I guess, when you're from the mean streets of New York, like, yeah, you're you're kind of... They they get the they get the stereotype about New Yorkers a hundred percent correctly. I'll give the game that. Um, but in the end, I feel like the biggest problem was, and I, I could be entirely wrong about the team, but it, it felt like people who don't know how to write 
a black protagonist writing a black protagonist in a satirical way, you know, but meaning it earnestly, which is, I think, where a lot of the cringe comes from. You know, if that does that make sense to you? Do you see that at all? I view it a little differently. I guess the way that I was uh-huh. looking at it is it looks, it feels, and this is true of a lot of content. I talked about this recently with um, Need for Speed Unbound. This idea of people trying to write a 21-year-old, like definitely someone from a bigger city where culture is going to be a little bit more uh, forward than probably like my culture around here. Like, you know, kids around here at 21 are probably slightly behind the curve of people that are in like New York at 21. You know what I mean? For like a modern audience. So when you're looking at this game that you're trying to tell me is modern and this 21-year-old, it's hard to believe entirely, not from her motivations or even her general dispositions, but rather her word choice. It doesn't feel, it feels like someone who's not a Gen Z or whatever she would be trying to write as a Gen Z. But that could also overlap with that. I I don't know. I mean, I feel like Unbound was a little different because you can choose your, like you can choose to be a white dude or a black dude or a Mexican or, you know, what whatever skin tone you want to be represented right. as, and you'll still have all the same dialogue. Uh, and then you can choose whether or not you want to be presented male or female. And I think what gets interesting there is that because there's not an exact character that you can point it to, it's the same thing. But since it's, since it's not a static character, you don't attribute it to race. So I guess I'm kind of using that same ideology here. Is that I don't think they were looking at her as being, um, you know, a person of color at all. And they're, I think that they're just trying to do this through the lens of the culture of uh, of people that they aren't. There, I doubt that anyone in that studio is 21, fresh, you know, f- fresh around the idea of current internet culture. Everything seems a little behind, and I've landed on what part of it is. Yeah. Part of it is that it's people riding out of their age group to begin with, but secondarily, games take so long to make, and this game in particular has taken so long to make, right. that they've landed on dialogue that already sounds dated, even though they probably wrote it four years when ago, because the cultural window moves so quickly yeah. that certain things just move. But I don't know. For anybody who's played near the original, not um, Automata, it's like a sloppier, slightly less endearing, and I don't mean any of these as negative terms, but this is the way I view it. It's the dynamic of Grimoire Vice and Kaine, but with Kaine being the main character, which is a bit different because in Nier you have um, either Father Nier or Son Nier, who's kind of a more plain character. They're not as extreme. And so Kaine being crazy off in the periphery is like, it feels like a side character role. Putting it in the main character role is not an issue for me, but it does mean that that dynamic is viewed slightly differently. Um, but Chris, before we get completely away from it, yeah, there's something you said about reviews, which I agree with. And uh, me and Mark um, were having this discussion about how I don't entirely disagree with the Metacritic either. It, I don't like putting scores on games and yet, of course, I, ha- I do it on here to context around what people are doing. So if I had to look at this through the scope of having to put something on Metacritic and therefore having to have a score, it's probably a 7 out of 10. Yeah, I'd probably give it a 6, 6.5. 
and, and either of those, right? Let's say it was a six or a seven. Right. It's perfectly okay to just enjoy a, a six and seven game. Absolutely. And what I was kind of bringing up, and there is sides to all this, but you know, the review scale in modern in, in recent years, definitely the last five years, but to a degree a little bit further. I feel like the way that we look at games now is that as far as Metacritic and all these review sites go, we look at things from a one out of 10 scale or, you know, a one to 100 scale. But the problem is, is that games are treated separate from that scale as though the scale that actually exists is like a five to 10 scale. So even though the scale, the scale is actually one to 10 and then a six is an above average game, People treat an above-average game that's a six and a half as a one and a half out of out of you know ten. Yeah, I, and wh- partially his his thing was that he thought that games and sorry, Chris, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, but just to fine. finish Mark's side of it, this is a good observation. Part of it is that the quality of games in general has just risen, but secondarily, review sites tend to just not review the worst of the worst anymore, and so contextually when everything you review is a six or higher for the most part, very seldom is it out of that a six and a half does feel contextually like, why would I waste my time on that? If you're super caught up in what the review is, but if you remove yourself from that, you can just have a good time with a six or seven out of 10 game that like Chris said, maybe you won't think about much after you played it, but you'll enjoy your time with it. Uh, But Go ahead, Chris, what were you going to say? I know. And I think something to look at is, I think Metacritic, Metacritic especially, but reviews in general, yeah, they're reviewing less things, but I think the scale has gone from 1 to 10 to 10 to 5, right? Because I feel like looking at something, like this may be a hot take, but I think this game is about on par with Naughty Bear for where I'd review it. Because I would sit here and i tell you, if if Naughty Bear came out in 2020, that game is a 6 or a 7 on Metacritic. But it, right now, it's a forty-seven. Alpha Protocol probably would be around an eight, not eight, seven point five. Now it's a sixty-five. You know, it's it's hard to to put it there where I don't think people are, people are not using the full scale anymore, unless something is catastrophically bad. So it's exactly what you're saying, and it's it's rough because I don't think it's unfair to call for spoken a six and a half or seven or whatever, you know, for a while it was kind of floating more towards seven, but I don't think it's wrong to call that game a six and a half out of 10. No, I just think it's wrong to suggest that a six and a half and a half out of 10 is a terrible game, which is what a lot of people are doing. It's social media. So they're of course really just exaggerating these things. What they're really saying is, is that because of how much time people have these days and the fact that there's enough games at a high enough quality rate that you don't feel like you really want to spend the time to take and play a six and a half out of 10 because you could play a, an eight out of 10. That's a fair question or a fair statement. Uh, but that's, you know, instead of it being presented that way, it's being presented as in, told you this game was going to be trash, but I just don't see... And this isn't even me trying to overly defend the game. This is me saying that, yeah, this is a six and a half, seven out of ten, and I'm cool with that, and I'm enjoying it more than I've enjoyed a couple of recent nine out of ten games in, ter- in terms of, you know, eight and a half out of ten games. Like, th- I know this is going to sound like sacrilege, but for the point of what I'm making, I've had more fun 
and a better time with Forspoken than I did Elden Ring. I'm not saying Forspoken's a better game than Elden Ring, but I'm saying that that's why review scores don't matter as much as people are acting like. And Chris is like, please don't. <laughs> people I, are going to attack you. Stop. 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 No, I mean, I agree. I, I don't. I don't agree, but I understand what you're saying. Well, it's like when a game's not for you, right? Yeah. Games are not inherent. Just because a game is a nine out of ten, even as a overall thing, or for you know Metacritic for let's say Metacritic for Red Dead Redemption One is an eighty nine. I don't know if that's true. But let's just say it is. That doesn't inherently make it a great game for everybody. So I can have more fun with a seven out of ten game that's scratching the sensibilities I want than I'll have with a nine out of ten or an eighty nine out of a hundred game that just doesn't click with me. And that's my point. Is it's this is the flip side of that. For the record, Red Dead is at a ninety-five. So, oh, nice. yeah. See, <laughs> so even even stronger, right? That's an even. Yeah. It's a better view of my point. I am not saying Red Dead is a bad game. I'm saying that as a ninety-five out of a hundred, I've tried playing it multiple times, and I just can't. It's it's not for me. I I don't enjoy it. I get that. So, who knows, man? Um, Forspoken's fine. It's not exactly the thing with Forspoken. <laughs> it's not worth seventy. You should pay. 35 max, but it's fine. Enjoy your time. I always view that as what is your disposable income? Because it's sure. totally worth 70 if you just want to have fun and you have 70. But right. if you don't have 70 to pay for a game that you don't feel like is going to blow you away, then yeah, wait. Play the game at $40, $35, right. $30, fuck 20 Play it whenever you feel ready, but don't not play it just because people told you not to. Don't play it because it just doesn't look like you'll enjoy it. Exactly. That's a perfectly fine reason to play. And then conversely, play it. Even if someone told you not to, if you looked at it and you thought, well, that kind of looks fun, play it. That's what I do. And two out of, I'm two for two on games that people were pretty harsh on and I've really enjoyed them. And that was Sonic Frontiers and now Forspoken. Yeah, I mean Sonic is interesting. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I'm fascinated to play more of it. I don't know if I'll beat it. I've got Dead Space and Hogwarts coming out. Like, I'm not spending the time right now, but maybe by the end of the year, who knows? Yeah, that was uh, one of the things that <laughs> that Rude Cold and Velvet Thunder were talking about is uh, how there's bigger games that you have and that you want to play. And yet somehow, sometimes you're just drawn to games that are more controversial or aren't as broadly enjoyed. Cause like mm-hmm. God of War Ragnarok was there, but I didn't start it until I was done with Sonic frontiers because I was just like, <laughs> I'd rather play Sonic frontiers right now. Cause like I'm already in it. I'm having a good time. I don't want to stop playing this to start playing something else. I'd rather just keep playing this, but uh, yeah, moving on. Um, I want to give a shout out real quick to uh, Kevin Bacon Bits for helping me. I talked about the Need for Speed Unbound Platinum last week, and um, he got on on two accounts on his Xbox and on his PlayStation, and we had a party of three. And the first try, first race that we created, we got into a world, got eight out of eight people, no one left. I got that Platinum, baby. And then he came back a few days later and got it. So thank you. Appreciate it. And uh, round of applause. Making making more big steps toward um, towards that uh, trophy competition, and 
I didn't put it on here, but Ghost of Tsushima, I did beat the story again, but because I didn't feel like doing all the open world stuff again and I realized that it's a transfer game, I just went back, found my PS4 transfer, brought it in, and they auto-popped the rest of the trophies. So I did get a platinum out of that, but it wasn't a 100% earned platinum. I didn't want to deal with the minutia again. I just wanted to play the story. (laughs) I really got to... I really got to step up in this race. I have not platinumed anything. I haven't committed to any games. And the only ones I have committed to, I ended up dropping off of. So it's interesting. Well, I'm realizing how important it is to get a trophy or get a platinum as soon as close to release as possible. Yeah. Because they seem to be worth more considerably. Yeah, but your store, your, you score will, your score will go back down. It'll fluctuate. Oh really? So I don't get the score that is a, that's given to the trophy at that time and it locks in? No, I don't believe so. Well, that's unfortunate because in my mind I got it when it was that rare. Just because something happens that makes it less rare in the future doesn't mean that I shouldn't have got that point value for getting to that goal quicker. Sure, but are you saying that if I was the first person to platinum, let, my name is Mayo, I should get 40,000 points, you know? Yes. sure if you want to keep up with that you can i'm just going to take the score at the end of the year no no we're just using the score that's on there but now you've got me curious as to what the how the point system actually works that's i think it's based on rarity it's based on the difficulty but that's why for me like i'm looking at older games like i'm like oh harry potter and the deathly house part one is 2900 points yeah i'll go for that it's probably not going to drop (laughs) <laughs> true good point I, I did want to talk about one more game quick this segues into our Metacritic draft a little bit here mm. so first off I'm at I believe it's an 88 now for Persona 4 Golden Okay. Um, you are at I believe last I did math it was about 52 points um, so we had a discussion on shadow drops and you said that we did. that we could take them if it's if even despite reviews, which means I would like to take a game that I played this week in Hi-Fi Rush, which is an excellent game, a lot of fun. But I don't I don't know I don't know what the the ruling is because that's an automatic eighty eight for me. If I remember correctly. I said that if a game shadow drops and you call it day of, then you could get it because you don't already know what the Metacritic will end up because there is no Metacritic. Yeah, but you have to do it on the show. That's what I, I no. we brought up. No, if you remember, we talked about it. All you got to do is shoot me a message that says dibs on any game when it comes to your mind. And, it, and it, we can update on the show that it's on our list now, but it's not a in the middle of recording the first person to say the game gets it. See, but I listened back to the Metacritic draft and we talked about that. Where it's like, okay, you have to shotgun on the show. It's fine. I won't take it. Hi-Fi Rush is really good. Clearly, we need to go back and uh, ironclad our rules. Yeah, our rules. But the whole point was that you don't know because then you could also just add any game at any point. It follows the same logic. Because that's what I said. I was like, if a game shadow drops and we have to call it on the show then how do we um, figure that out? I'm fine with not with not taking it. 
I just wasn't sure how we were going to play that rule because the shadow drop. Is here, so hard. here you go, Chris. You listen to the show anyway. Yeah, uh, I don't because I edit and I just listen to it by nature of editing. <laughs> um, so if you want to go back and, and and listen to that episode and then jot down what we said and send me a time code, I mean, I'll honor whatever was said. No, it's fine. I will take it. But I feel pretty confident that I remember saying that you don't have to do it on the show. But hey, I've been wrong about things I felt confident about before. So <laughs> that is what it is. Yes. Yeah, so right, like well, are you ready to uh, hit? Are you ready to get hit with the first question of the day? All right. Or of the show, I should say. TT Dog 666, newly a patron uh, once more. He comes up with a question that I think I wanted to put here because it made me think about Forspoken the way he talked about it here. But he says, what's the worst collectibles ever seen in a game? I'd go for the sodding orbs and crackdown. Who thought 1,300 collectibles was a good idea? Shoot them now. <laughs> and the reason I even thought about this is that I like the question, but as I've been sitting and thinking about it, I don't have an obvious answer. But I do have at least a thought process over what he's talking about. Because if I remember correctly in Crackdown, they're agility orbs or something to that degree. And that means yeah, that you use them to power your character up to some degree. There's something similar in Saints Row 4 where you can find these little plumes that you can use to spend on, I think, upgrades for your abilities or something like that. And... Forspoken has them as well. I saw right before you turned it off, Chris, that you were picking up some of those light plumes that are scattered across the landscape. Correct. And those are mana. And as you get mana, you which you get from leveling up and finding around the world, you can spend it on spells inside of your repertoire of spells as you continue to unlock more. Um and to that, I don't really mind that because it's always a mixture of how fun is moving around the world and then what was the motivation for the collectible? Because I seem, it seems to me that most collectibles, like most collectibles in general, uh, if they're going to be high quantity, are something that you collect that goes towards powering your character up, um, like the Blast Shards in Infamous 1 and 2. And, of course, the... Um, Orbs that we're talking about in Crackdown, the Forspoken mana. There's a lot of games that use this ideology of, well, if you can find these, you get something out of it. Uh, even Resident Evil 4, the medallions that you can shoot for the merchant, um, there's not a ton of them. But there's a reason that you're doing it because the game gives you internal motivation, either mechanically or with a reward um, that's worth it. So, yeah, I agree that 1,300 seems like a lot, but as long as it's, there's probably more than, thir- uh, there might be 1,300 or maybe even more in Forspoken of those uh, mana things, but they're fun to get because moving around and doing magic parkour across the landscape is just inherently fun to me at the very least. Um, but Chris, do you have something that comes to mind that you think is just an awful collectible? I feel like if I really had one, it would be something that was like a deep down inside, like I hate it. <laughs> but I can't think of one like the Dalmatians from Kingdom Hearts one, but you get uh, items from Pongo and Perdita as you turn them in. So there's still a motivation to do it, but you don't have to. Um, for me, I think it's less of a specific game and more of, I don't mind collectibles if they're tracked. Mm. 
That's it's not like crackdown. Yeah, that sounds awful, but I don't think there's any functional reason to pick them up other than my abilities improve. You know, one of the reasons I dropped off on doing the Bayonetta Platinum is I followed a guide for the whole thing and somehow missed a bunch of collectibles. And that was just disheartening because there's there's chapter select, but there's no way for me to figure out what I missed and didn't miss. So now I got to just go back and collect them all again. And I don't want to do that. So for me, it's a matter of if a game doesn't track it or anything like that, then I'm pretty much done with that that whole thing. I'll follow a guide through, but if I miss something and I don't know where it is, like I'm just not going to go back. And that sucks. Yeah, I talk about tracked collectibles all the time, and that was one of the big missteps of a game like The Order, in my opinion, as well, where it's like, I enjoy that, but it took me years to get The Order Platinum, despite the fact that I think the playthrough I got the Platinum in was like my fourth playthrough or third playthrough, but that's just because at no point was I worried about following a god, but I was like, if I get all the play, if I get the remainder of the... um, the items I'm missing in collectibles, then great. If I don't, then fine, because there's no way to track them. Um, so every time I'd play, I'd just wait a little while, come back and play, and just spend a little more time looking and you know redoing that. But I hated that because I thought, well, you know, I, I, I would probably go back and get the Platinum immediately if it had a way to show me. Absolutely. I don't know. It's just, it, it does, it's not fun to not have it tracked like that. I get that. Yeah, you know, I think about games that have collectibles just for collectible sake, but does that really inherently make a collectible bad? That kind of comes down to the thing no. because a collectible bad because there it, it it pushes you to try and do it because it's a benefit or is a collectible bad when there's no reason to even get it to begin with. Like most games I feel like try to give a reason like uh, X-Men Wolverine. You would find mm-hmm. the collectibles because you could get different suits. Yeah. Then God of War was pretty similar. Um, Uncharted, you've you've platinum some of the Uncharted games. What are getting all the treasures? Like, did you? Is there a mechanical advantage or a reward that they give you that's actually worth finding them all? Is it? No, um, those are actually an example of what I was going to give that doesn't make a ton of sense. Because even in the lore, Drake is not rich, but I collect a hundred platinum, a hundred. Treasures a game, man should be rich. <laughs> so, like, it doesn't even make sense in the world. Yeah. Yeah. The only game I've done it in has been the, the Vita title. And that was primarily because finding them felt like it was more of like a, hey, you might want to take turn left here at this cross instead of right because they kind of broadened the worlds a bit for that title. Uh, mm-hmm. in a way that I feel like the console titles didn't normally do. So it was a little more fun. I still think it was ultimately, it was a kind of pain in the ass and it was the last thing I had to do. Um, but that's, that's why I don't have the Platinums in all those games is I don't feel like finding all the stuff because there's not even a reason to do it <laughs> from what I can tell. It's like I'm not going to get anything. A good example, actually, and it was it's kind of a weird in-between, but... Um, Lost Legacy, from a gameplay perspective, which I think is uh, the best Uncharted game, actually tries to solve this problem a bit by having the collectibles that you can find, where if you find all 10 of them or 13 or whatever it was, you get a medallion that 
Uh, and it's not those types of treasures, but you get a medallion that when you're near a treasure kind of glows or makes a sound or something. Uh-huh. And I'm like, oh, okay, cool. They gave me a collectible that helps me find something that makes it easier to find the other collectibles. I'm good with that. I don't, I, in the end, I just, I don't mind collectibles. There's a level of too much, like Saboteur. Sounds like a great game. It's got a thousand collectibles. I'm not doing it. You know? Like, I'm just not. I saw so. the map for the saboteur. <laughs> and it looks. Just all white dots. It looks like Ubisoft modern games on steroids. And that was <laughs> EA, if I remember correctly. Yeah, it was. Uh, oh. EA and Pandemic? That's it. Yes, yeah, Pandemic. And that is a 2010 game? <laughs> they were ahead of the curve, man. Ahead of the curve. The saboteur. Right here. Uh, There's a lot of really cool ideas within that game, though. It's a good game. Hmm. That was when EA was doing a little bit more bold stuff than I feel like they are now. And the PS3 era, B. Rogers is listening just like, God, I got to buy another game. If he doesn't already have it. (laughs) Have you been seeing his updates of all the stuff that you've basically been making him buy? <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> I'm holding a uh, six access to his head. Like, buy this stuff. Um, I need a report on that Defender controller because I would like a second PS3 controller. But I'm thinking about that one. But. So far, to give you that, so far I enjoy it. But yeah, hope it's not a big quality control problem. But he mentioned that he has a sticky R1 as well. But when I messaged huh. him and emailed them and told him, hey, whenever I hit the R1, I can't smack it. <laughs> consistently like quickly because it sticks and it takes a second to rise back up so they're sending me another unit assuming that everything works correctly and they send me another unit that is fine my plan is to use that one to see if i can replace all the buttons with actual playstation buttons like the ps symbol at the home area and instead of those multi like three layers of triangles stacked on top of each other just put a normal playstation buttons in there so yeah we'll see cool but it works well it doesn't require a dongle. It acts exactly like a six axis. There is six axis built into it. There's rumble. It's not as strong as a DualShock 3, but it's it's fine. It's the closest to a DualShock 3 without having to deal with trying to find a DualShock 3 in good shape or brand new. Hell yeah. I'm gonna I'll probably give one. So so far I enjoy it. Nice. Yeah, I'll, I'll update you when the new one comes in. But Thank with you, that in mind. Yeah, I'd love to hear if anyone else has any good uh, DualShock 3 alternatives. But all right, Chris, time to move into the community's take. And the community's take, of course, was us telling you that, hey, we've talked about our game of the year. We want to open up the doors to you, let you tell us what your game of the year is. But more importantly, we asked for shout-outs for games that you felt did not get enough love this year. Now, what we're going to aim to do here, and editing may prove that it didn't work well enough to be compelling, (laughs) but we're going to go through and just... We got a lot of responses, so we're going to try and get every response, but only add things to responses that have interesting games or very unheard of games so that we can highlight them as well as, uh, you know, maybe learn about a couple of games we might have should have played ourselves or games that we also agreed did not get enough love. So with that in mind, Chris, we have a, right. so many patrons came out of the woodwork. So we're going to start it off with Aztec King. One of our patrons, he says, Game of the Year, God of War Ragnarok. Short, sweet, simple. Ragnarok and Elden Ring have been mentioned enough in the Game of Year discussions. We will not talk about them any further, but I'm glad you enjoyed it. Rude Cold 
says, For as much as I enjoyed Elden Ring and was impressed with its vast world, surprisingly, I had more fun with games like Sonic Frontiers and Kirby and the Forgotten Land and was much more addicted to getting 100% on them. Can I really give Sonic Game of the Year when Kirby had so much more polish? Yes. Yes, I can. And I got to tell you, Rude Cold, I'm there for that energy because Sonic is fantastic and I really enjoyed it. Um, Now, Chris, I know that one's a bit out there. Do you want to add anything onto there? Because Kirby is a game I have been eyeing as a, maybe that's something I'd actually play on Switch. (laughs) Um. I mean, I I understand how starved Sonic fans are. So the first time you guys ever get 100%. a decent game, I'm not surprised it's your game of the year. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I don't even think that Rude Cold was much... I might be confusing him with someone else, but I don't remember him being a big Sonic fan prior to this. So that's interesting. Blake Popes, the ghost ever so haunting, says Elden Ring, and I can't imagine there's anything in competition. Josh Ayers, another patron, he comes out and says, probably not my game of the year, but an overlooked game is Stranger of Paradise Final Fantasy. It was super fun and has been getting DLC. I've yet to play, but want to. Uh, And he's talking specifically about the DLC he's yet to play. I think that game looks better than the initial reveal would have gave it credit for, and I've been meaning to play it. Chris, didn't you buy it? I did. Great. I'll just get to play it off of your, <laughs> your back. Thanks, man. Sounds right, yeah. Hey, of course. Enjoy. <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting game. Uh, Velvet Thunder, another patron, says, Obviously, Game of the Year is God of War, without question, but I'm going to give a shout-out to The Quarry, The Devil in Me, and AI Nirvana Initiative, which I think is the Somnium Files uh, sequel. Uh, it says yeah. three excellent narrative-driven games that crimin- got criminally overlooked. Uh, two of those, if I'm not mistaken, were um, super massive. Isn't that right? I hate mm-hmm. super giant, super massive. There's all, but I'm pretty sure super massive. Um, I started on the quarry, uh, and I do intend to get back to it in the long run. I'm glad you. Continue to bring it up because it keeps it further in my mind. Rude Days 93, another patron, says, They didn't release in 2022, but I played both Persona 5 and Mass Effect Legendary Edition yeah, this year. Did. Those will have to be my one and two games for this year. Yeah, if I are. had to pick a game from 2022, I think it would be Immortality. First time playing a movie game like that, and I was very much into it. And I think when he's talking movie game, uh, if I remember correctly, Immortality is kind of like the modern version of the old PS1 FMV games where you'd make decisions and then a different thing would play out. Um, what was that game on PS1 called? Fox Hunts or something like that. I may be thinking, yeah, Fox Hunt. Really weird game, but FMV, there's a couple of other ones. So that's a cool one to shout out. Uh, TT Dog 666 comes back around, another patron. He says, Horizon Forbidden West. I'd sit there and play for hours on end. Something I never really did with Ragnarok. Interesting. The Lord Corgi coming in, another patron, says, God of War was my game of the year, followed by Elden Ring. But special shout out to both Cult of the Lamb which we know Chris loves, and Tunic, a game that I'm highly excited for, for being absolute bangers on the indie side of things. Chris, do you want to give some extra love to Call to the Lamb? <laughs> yeah, play it. It's great. Eat poop with your followers. Hopefully Tunic is good. <laughs> it looks Hopefully. it. I'm sure it is. And then B-Raj88 himself 
being brought back up around him. Another patron says, just to be difficult, I'm going to say Stray. I love that game, and so did my cats. You earn the ability to be difficult. You don't worry about it. Stray was an excellent yeah. game. I quite enjoyed it myself. It almost hit my list because I did really enjoy it. Hope to see more from that developer. Uh, we've got a couple more here. we got Yuna. So I have two games for this one, a non-22 release and a 2022 release. My non-2022 release game is The Legend of Heroes Trails in the Sky, the third. Anyone who nice. knows me knows how much I love this series, and I will take any moment to sing its praise. And going to this, then Trails from Zero was awesome. For my 2022 release, it would have to be AI, the Somnium Files, Nirvana Initiative. Another shout out for that. Uh, never played Zero Escape, but this was a great sequel to the 2019 game. Hold on. Zero Escape, the uh, Nonary game, if I remember uh-huh. correctly. I played that on Vita. Are the AI Somnium file games like pseudo sequels? Is it like Drakengard or near to Drakengard where it's a spinoff based on a certain ending? Because I know Zero Escape had multiple endings. I will have to look more into that. Look for you guys to hopefully fill me in on that. That's Hell cool. yeah. Sweet Gran Turismo Jones says Gran Turismo 7 was mine, and you know it. He says it's not perfect, in my opinion, but it's definitely the best Gran Turismo in the series. Since launch, I have sunk hundreds of hours, and most of it has been excellent, minus the months when they ruined the physics. Thankfully, that's something that they were able to patch back around to. Still wish it was PS5 only. Can't wait to try it in PSVR 2. And just a quick second on that. I do often wonder, a lot has been made in social media, Chris. I don't know if you've seen this, of people immediately comparing uh, the new Forza Motorsport reboot. I think it's just called Forza Motorsport uh, to Gran Turismo 7. And while that's fair and perfectly fine, because they're both the similar type of game uh, for their respective systems, I think it's a little weird to be trying to dunk on Gran Turismo 7, which is a cross-gen game, by comparing it to a next-gen only game when Gran Turismo 7 still looks perfectly fine. I mean, it's a fantastic-looking game. So, yeah, the new Forza looks great, and I hope that all the more sim aspects that they're bringing into the uh, play this time, I'll probably try it just for comparison's sake since it'll be a Game Pass title. Um, but, yeah, I do. I am curious as to what a Gran Turismo 7 that was PS5 only would have looked like. So we'll see. Turning Amish says, excluding remasters slash remakes, got to give some love to Ghostwire Tokyo, which absolutely nailed the atmosphere for the game location, made open world traversal a blast. Yes, it did. And didn't overstay its welcome while also being enjoyable to 100% and platinum. Agreed. Ghostwire is a fantastic game. It didn't hit my game of the year list at all, but I really enjoyed it. And it was really strong at being what it set out to be. Super fun to traverse the game world as well, which I think is a trait that Forspoken has. Um, And I think there's some similarities to the way they approach that just with a change in perspective since Ghostwire is from that first person, more Bioshocky feel of, uh, of game. Chris, you never ended up getting very far in Tokyo, did you? I did not, know. I would like to go back to it at some point. It's a game I would love to hear your thoughts on if you ever do go back to. Um, I do think you would like it. I don't, okay. I mean, I don't know if you'd love it, but I think you would like it. All right, I'll download it. All right, Gamers Gamut comes through with my game of the year was Elden Ring, but I want to shout out Roller Drome and Sifu. Those games were incredible. Heard a oh, lot yeah, of great stuff about Sifu. Chris, you were wanting to play Sifu at one point as well. Did you get around to it? I have not bought it yet. 
Mm. One of these days. Well, there you go. Now's your time. Now's now? your time. Now. Go to a PlayStation uh, got a lot store. To buy. Download Got it. a lot of stuff yeah. to buy. <laughs> yeah, I understand. Uh, two more here to wrap up the list. We have Kevin Bacon Bits, one of our patrons, who says, Game of the Year for 2022 for me was definitely Elden Ring. If I could pick out of the games I played but did not release in 2022, it would be Sekiro, hands down. For me, it is now the best of the Soulsborne games and fighting Mass Effect for my favorite game of all time. Wow. Chris, you found a new another brother in your Sekiro love for 2022. Join us. Join us. <laughs> Come hither. <laughs> oh, man. Jehudi MD, another patron, is our last. He says, as a game I played at the tail end of 2022, my game of the year goes to Vampire Survivors. This game Round came of out of nowhere for me. I remember seeing it on some gaming reel video and was attracted by its graphics. Chris Figgs also mentioned it in one of the episodes. And in a follow-up tweet, he did mention it's a game that you have to play to really understand. 100%. Why people love it. And uh, yeah, it's a game I intend to eventually get around to because of the fact that just looking at it, it's a game that you can tell by looking. Doesn't give you the full story by looking at it. No. Crazy enough, there are games that I feel like you can look at and get a pretty good feel for how they, what they are. And if you enjoy them, and then sometimes I feel like there's games where I've looked at them and I thought I will absolutely enjoy that. And then I hate it. (laughs) Uh huh. I, it's a hard thing to kind of come together, but there are games where I, I hate it despite feeling like it's completely what I visually saw, but it being in your hands is the worst. And it happens. It does not very often, but it does happen. All right, Mm -hmm. guys, that leads us to what I have decided for editorializing sake. It was an answer to the, to the community's take um, call, but it didn't really answer. And instead I kind of viewed it as a player listener, whatever you want to call them. That is just kind of going through some stuff. So (laughs) for the fun of it, I decided to bring up and create a uh, potentially one-off, but if you guys like it, maybe we'll bring it back, and ask Triangle Squared advice column. So in the spirit of that, even though you could go and easily find this, we're going to use his initials. JM says, just finished God of War Ragnarok, and I loved it, except for getting around the map. I wanted to clean up everything before I finished the game, but either I'm terrible at directions or they made it a major chore. I still haven't played Horizon Forbidden West, but now that I just finished God of War, I need something different, but I don't know what to play. I feel kind of either burnt out or just not inspired to play much. A lot of it has to do with my job. I'm so tired when I get home and I mostly just play Madden or MLB The Show, and it feels like a majority of the games I've bought and subscribed to premium for feels like I will never play. I just feel stuck. So, Chris. Hi. You are a fellow fan of coming home and just smashing out some MLB The Show. True. So let's put yourself in the mind space of JM here, right? What are your words of advice to use what they have uh, options for, opportunity for, to help them get out of this? Um, what would you do? I would just not force WWCD. It. <laughs> no, I think... Just don't force it. Um, 
I notice I'm going through the same kind of thing right now where I'm not really sticking with anything except Marvel Snap. And it's when I try and be like, I'm just going to play this. I end up liking that game less. So I think the thing that you just got to do is just continue playing MLB The Show and Madden because those are what you're enjoying, right? That's what you're telling. That's what I feel like you're being told by your brain. And it's one of those things where you have maybe it's FOMO, but you're forcing yourself to play things that you probably don't really want to play. You know, I had a lot of time when I was in my MLB grind where I would come on the show and be like, yeah, I'm really just only playing MLB and I want to play something else, but I'm just not doing it. I'm going back to MLB. The reality of that situation was I didn't want to play something else. I just didn't want to play something else later. Does that make sense? Like I wanted to play, I don't know, Deathloop right then, but my mind wanted MLB. You know what I mean? So... In the end, I think the heart wants what the heart wants, right? So just just, just play what you want to play at the moment, and Horizon will still be there. Harry Potter will still be there. So just play what, what's, what feels good now and stop worrying about everything else, and then you'll, you'll find the time down the, down the road. I think that's pretty good advice, Chris. Thanks. I think to not echo your advice, because I do think that that is good advice, right? Take the path of least resistance here. But if you want to try and push yourself to play something different and see if you can find a way out of the rut naturally without forcing yourself into playing something that's not quite finding inspiration for, I would say that it seems to me that the games you're falling into are games that you're already familiar with. But if you kind of extrapolate outside of that, Madden and MLB, the show, are gameplay games. They're games that you can put on and you can play and you don't really have to overly worry about this character or that character or what story B is coming up. And it's not as exhausting. So when you have days where you have really long days at work, uh, it can be really fun to just come home and play something that stimulates your reaction and like your ability to enjoy something without overly stimulating your brain while trying to keep up with all these other things. So look for a few games that are pretty obviously not story driven because the games that you mention are very story heavy that you're wanting to play, right? Horizon. You need something different. Well, coming off of a game like God of War Ragnarok, which is so dedicated to telling its story that I personally think it sometimes gets in its own way of being a fun game. Uh, do the exact opposite. Find a game that is either free so that you don't have to feel like you're... If you buy a game, the problem that you'll run into is that you'll feel the motivation won't be purely trying to find something new to play that's scratching that itch. It'll be, ah, I feel like I got to play this to try and justify my purchase. So since you have premium... Scroll through premium one day. Maybe do a little YouTube search. Find a game that's pure gameplay or very close to it that can give you that same sense of I can sit down and play it without having to think much, but it can break you out of the rut that you may feel you're in with MLB and Madden. So scratch the same itch with a new, different game. Doesn't have to be a new release, but something new to you. And like Chris said, these other games that you want to play, you'll find the inspiration for when that time comes where you want a story game to pull you, right? After God of War, 
I felt very drained by story games. And so I was able to immediately go into Need for Speed Unbound. And that's a game where I, there's a story, but I didn't give a shit what was happening in that story. I was having fun time racing cars, sliding sideways around corners and just having a good time. Uh, And now I feel refreshed from that. And I can go into a game like Forspoken that doesn't have the most amazing story, but I think the story is interesting enough and the lore specifically is interesting enough. And I find myself actually reading all the little notes and archives that you can find out. And I'm enjoying that. But I think if I played the exact same game that Forspoken is right now, directly after God of War, it'd have been a no-go. I don't think I would have enjoyed it at all. Mm-hmm. So you got to give yourself those ebbs and flows. You got to ride them, find something to break you out of your rut, but don't stretch too far outside of your current comfort zone. Chris, I feel good about that. That felt like the, fir- the first and very successful Ask Triangle Squared advice column. So, uh, you know, if you guys like that, you got to let us know. That may be something we continue to do. And uh, if you guys really want to do it in the spirit of having fun, we can set up a way to anonymously uh, submit answers to us if that's really uh, the way we want to take it. But if you also just want to be completely anonymous, what would be the opposite of anonymous? <laughs> if you want to just be known, you don't care. Um, then yeah, anonymous. you can also just do it that way. Anonymous, yeah. <laughs> so there you are. Hip hop anonymous. I know that you've also mentioned that you don't get to listen to the show as often because of your new job, your changing job. Uh, so, with that in mind, whenever you get around to this, I hope that you're either on the other side of it or that our words can actually help you uh, get to the other side of it. But with that said, Chris, Hi. I think it's time that we remind everybody that if they want to support the show, where can they there's go? There's a couple of ways they can do it. They can spread the show to other people they think might like it. Go over, find us on Twitter at Triangle SQRD, on Facebook in the group, a Triangle Squared at PlayStation Podcast, or you can always click down into the description and find us in the Discord. You can join us, talk to us, submit questions to the show, interact with us. That's that's the first way. If you feel so inclined and you want to support the show with more, you can always head over to patreon.com slash nartech and give as little as a dollar per month. Uh, really helps us just cover all the costs for the show. And there's, you can support as much or as little as you want. With that in mind, we know that not everyone uh, supports Patreon. Uh, there are some decisions that Patreon has made that made people not want to spend their money there. So we understand. And uh, we don't begrudge anybody. So we're just glad y'all are here listening to the show. And for any newcomers that are here, again, thank you for sticking around if you made it this far. We hope you've had a good time. But now it's time to get into the news. Chris, would you agree? I would not agree, actually, because I have something to say. <gasps> Chris, you have something to say? I Please. do. Yeah, it's a great say time it. because we talked about stuff that we do with our community. And with our community this year, we are doing a trophy challenge. So I wanted to kind of put it up because this is the last day of January as of recording. And our February game of the month has been decided by landslide vote. And Brett, can you guess what game in February is the... February race to platinum game. Oh, let's see. February. Hmm. You think you can there's, win uh, Guardian you know, Leviosa? Some ideas? <laughs> yeah, you know, I think that there's like, you know, like a dragon, Ishan is there. Um, yeah. But that's probably Are you not Are stumpified as, by it? It's, it? it's probably a little game where you play as a little sorcerer running around. Ah, Wait, yes. uh, not a sorcerer. A wizard. A You're wizard. a wizard. 
Yes. Yes. So our game of February is going to be Hogwarts Legacy. Um, I do want to make sure I shout out Yuna, who is the only person who voted for Like a Dragon Ishin. And as far as I'm concerned, you are the only person with taste in our community. So good for you. <laughs> <laughs> you are the taste maker. I joke, I joke, I kid, I kid, but great pick. All right, calm down there, Triumph. Uh, <laughs> all right. Well, Chris, thanks. And then as a reminder, anybody who still wants to join, you can do so. But doing so, well, of course, welcome. puts you at a slight disadvantage. But if you want to come in and just wreck shop and show us that you can beat everyone in the trophy competition, feel free to join in. We have a link uh, we can send to you if you want to reach out to us. We can do that. And as a reminder, the monthly game vote, the first person to platinum that game that was voted on for the monthly thing gets extra points. Everyone else still gets the normal points from the platinum, but the first person to do it gets an extra thousand. Yep. So it pays to finish quickly. Hmm. That's like the opposite of what I've always heard, but that's okay. Uh, Chris, I mean, this is a long time, right? We will get into the news with some unfortunate news to start with. Uh, EA and Respawn have announced that Star Wars Jedi Survivor will be moving off of its March 17th release date by six weeks and will now hit physical and digital shelves weeks later on April 28th. Among the other things pointed out in a statement, polish is the big reason for the delay. Now, Chris, I know you've kind of been off and on on how you feel about this to begin with. Um, but is this a good or a bad for you? Because there's a lot of games coming out in a window. Do you feel like this is going to help things feel spread out, or is it just going to compound on another big release down the line? Both. Like, yeah, this takes it away from Resident Evil 4, but probably puts it in something else's way. But honestly, as someone who took Fallen Order, uh, Jedi Survivor in the draft, I'm more than happy with them taking their time and polishing the game, so... Delay it to December 31st point. if you have to. Yeah. <laughs> no, I get you. That's just how it is. I mean, at this point, you know, I love the first game. And it was one of those things where the first game was great, but it had some issues that you could tell were like growing pains for a studio that didn't make this type of game. And so now that they're kind of coming through this, I think everybody gave them a lot of wiggle room and comfort area to say, hey, this is still a great game. These are the areas where you can improve. So whatever the reason may be, my only hope is that at the end of whatever road, however long this takes, is that we have a game that tried its best to earnestly improve in any way, shape, or form on some of the issues the first game had uh, while still carrying the same charm and care for the series. Because I do think the great the first game was great, and if you're a Star Wars fan, it was good for Star Wars fans. And if you weren't a Star Wars fan, it was just fun from a gameplay standpoint. Um, so we'll definitely see how that ends up. But it is unfortunate that it seems no game completely gets away without a delay these days. You know? Yeah, it's too bad. It's where we are. All right, next piece of news. January 31st will now be known as Final Fantasy VII Day in Japan, if Square Enix has anything to say about it. While there is no news on Rebirth's release date, which is scheduled for this winter, as you may remember, this might be a telltale sign that they're going to plan to release the game on this date next year, boding quite negatively for Chris's Metacritic draft, um, <laughs> which is why I so quickly snapped up Final Fantasy 16, which I felt confident would come this year. Yeah, better pick. 
Yeah. With that in mind, though, uh, it would still hold true to being winter. Uh, so that's one thing to think of. It would not necessarily be a delay so much as it would be a, okay, it's the other side of winter <laughs> that just happens to be next year. Um, what do you think the chances of this are, Chris? I mean, with Forspoken coming and them trying to do what they can to make it a big game, I don't think Rebirth has much bear, uh, you know, bearings on that. But I think that Square would want to create as much distance between the June release date of Final Fantasy 16, if I remember correctly, and a early January. That seems well. That's It gives it six months to breathe on its own before we have to worry about any competition from a different but still big Final Fantasy title. Would you agree with that? Or you think that we could still actually see it hit 2022? I mean, I think or we're three, still rather. could actually see it hit this year. Um, I think a lot of these celebrational days are kind of weird because most of the time the studios don't use them. You know, we didn't get anything on the Metroid 30th anniversary or the Zelda 89th. You know what I mean? Like they don't always look at those days as got to nail it. I think this year to, it would just look good for them, right? To have Final Fantasy 16 and Final Fantasy 7 both be great this year you know, maybe take some of the quote-unquote stink off of Forspoken. Um, I think it would behoove them to release them both this year, whether it's a good... I mean, I think it's a good idea, but whether it's what they end up doing is another question. But I would would be thinking it's a good idea to do it. Well, I think the people who clearly go through and look at all of the charts and figures of how long a game needs to be on sale and what kind of tell they expect and doing what you can to try and not to cannibalize another game. Because, I mean, one of the go-to long-running uh, examples in the gaming industry was always the Battlefield 4, if I remember correctly. Battlefield, uh, or is it Battlefield 5? It might have been 5. But uh, that and Titanfall 2 coming out essentially two weeks apart from each other um, when you're trying to make a new comparable Call of Duty comp- competitor and you're immediately putting the more known call of duty competitor out right alongside it to give it no chance to breathe and really grow into something of its own um that i think did you agree that that was kind of a a weird choice on ea's part a little bit yeah yeah i mean but six months is a very different story than that so uh you know at some degree it's kind of like well you know if sony can release a first party title or at least a ps5 exclusive every three months i bet they're happy you know it's like ah, every quarter at least you have a game that makes you think this is why i bought a ps5 i agree i mean i think one a quarter is bare minimum personally well the other side is just because it's in partnership with playstation I've always been curious, does PlayStation have much of a say on when the title, like, can they push and be like, hey, we're, you know, we're, we're putting this game up as a flagship title for us and we really want it to hit 2022 because we are 2023. I'm at that beginning months where it's hard to remember what year it is. <laughs> but I think does Sony have a reasonable ability to say like, Hey, because of our partnership and us covering the marketing costs and all this, we want this game to be a 2023 highlight for us. Unless it's going to just completely put out a broken game. How much can they reasonably push? So like how much is it square Enix's interest versus Sony's interest on both titles? Since they're both 
PlayStation 5 exclusives on the console side. I don't know. I doubt it really has much to do with PlayStation. It seems to me like they're just buying it. Um, they're just buying the idea to give it to... Uh, Jesus, I'm so sorry. You're gonna have to edit this a little bit. I'm, my words are killing me, but it really just seems like they were they just buy the rights to have it exclusive, and then let let Square Enix do it. I don't see because I don't think it behooves them to be like you need to rush this game out. Oh, it's not ready. Sucks. It's in our slate. Like that doesn't help them. So I think it's just the best idea to let it ride. And Sony is not known for doing that with its own studios. Normally, Days Gone, you could argue, as a time where they probably really did push to put out a game that needed probably another month, <laughs> you know, <laughs> to where they can actually send out a version that doesn't crash and keep reviewers from finishing the game. Um, which thankfully, that's not the version that we got as day one. There were still some pretty big issues, but none of them were as bad as reviewers saying, like, I genuinely couldn't even play the game. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, it's it's not normally Sony's way forward. So yeah, it would be weird and seem out of character to a degree for them to be that way. But I have always been curious, like how much Sony has sway, I guess would be the best way to put it in there. I don't know that they have control so much as they can go like, listen, as part of us fronting this game and helping build hype as it being an exclusive, we also really would like to see if it's possible to get it within this year. But that's something that we'll, uh, we'll have to learn. I mean... Right now, I hope that it hits next year just because your Metacritic draft could use a, a good blow, you know? <laughs> Thanks for that. It could use a good kneecapping. Fair. That's a fair point. So, <laughs> all right, man. <laughs> next thing up in the news, Bloomberg has indicated that PSVR 2's pre-order numbers were very disappointing for Sony, which has resulted in them cutting their forecast in half. Uh, just for context, they claim that Sony went from 2 million expected units down to 1 million. For their part, Sony has denied the story and said that they see tons of interest from gamers interested in titles like Gran Turismo 7 and the other 30 titles being released at the peripherals launch. Now, of course, this could still be true and Sony's just denying it. I do feel like if this was Sony essentially saying like, ah, nope, Nope, but it really was true. Someone else would have come out and cooperated this. Yeah. So it seems likely that this is just someone trying to... I don't want to put ill intent, but I think it is, this is probably a story of someone getting told something, mm-hmm. putting it to press too quickly with not enough work because it's juicy to a degree, definitely in the era of console wars that we are, you know, are in, and turning out that this is going to kind of bite them in the ass if it really isn't true. The other thing is perspective. Sony could still be internally expecting less while still creating the same amount of units so that the potential is there for it to still sell through 2 million, even if their internal, you know, guesstimate of what will sell has been adjusted down to a million. Sony can deny it as if it were basically a half-truth and they'd still get away with it. But uh, I would say that there's been a lot of other people who have uh, points of contact at Sony that say that this was never true. So 
unfortunately, we're in a time where you got to be careful about believing what you read immediately. Uh, but time will always tell whether they were true or not in the long run. Uh, we'll see if PSVR 2 has a considerably lesser um, launch than its previous headset did. Uh, but with that in mind, Chris, earlier today, a lot of people were kind of speculating, myself included, on why that might be. Um, so do you have any ideas for yourself as to why PSVR 2's interest, if this had been true, would have been lower or at least pre-order numbers would have been lower? Do you attribute it to cost or something else? Um, it's cost, but I, it feels weird to say this with Gran Turismo 7 and Horizon, but I don't think there's anything coming out that feels like a must play. So you're trying to tell someone to pay $600 for ostensibly an old game, which is in Gran Turismo, old in, in quotes, it came out last year, but you know what I mean, and an unproven Horizon title that no one knows anything about. And so I think it's a hard sell. Like I think this is one of those times where if it was like, this is why people were like, they need Half-Life Alex. Right, because if I was looking at six hundred dollars, just to play devil's advocate, is is Half Life Alex not also just an old game? Yes, but it's. I think, and, and yeah, you're you're not wrong, but I think there's a difference between that and this is one of the best P- VR games ever, you know, because that, but because what I mean is not, you know, I I guess you're right. I'm being a little hypocritical, but I'm more thinking of just the the title selling people on it. And it's hard for me to see Gran Turismo being a huge selling point on top of the fact that it's not a new Gran Turismo. I guess maybe that makes sense. Um, I look at something like Half-Life Alex as this is a must play VR game. This sells you on VR 10, 10 out of 10 all over the place. That seems like a game that would sell things rather than Gran Turismo, which is a niche title to begin with whether the niche is big or not is another thing on top of $600. So that's where I'm looking at it, where my most anticipated titles for VR are Beat Saber and Canoe Simulator or Canoe VR, Kayak VR. So <laughs> that, as cool as those look, it doesn't justify $600 for me. Where Saints and Sinners Chapter 2 as well, I would imagine, because you seem yes. to be quite the advocate for the first game. I did really like Saints and Sinners. So while my argument may not make the most sense with Gran Turismo and versus Half-Life Alex, I do think there's a lot of name recognition missing from it on top of $600, on top of $500 for the console. So I think there's a lot of things going against PSVR 2 right now. Yeah, I think the, where I had kind of landed on, because I would say that while I can kind of understand how you're reaching the conclusion you did for the games, I would agree that Half-Life Alex as a day one title would be a benefit, be a boon. I don't know how much it would genuinely change things, but this also goes towards one of those things of where are you at on the internet? Because as someone who's quite an avid fan of Gran Turismo 7, that was a that was the make or break title for me to actually pre-order it because there wasn't, uh, outside of Resident Evil 8, which I also do think is a pretty big game to throw out there because the Resident Evil 7 was a flagship, must-have, must-play VR title for the first PSVR. 
and it's remained exclusive to that console. So if this the same remains true for Resident Evil Eight, which yet to you know yet, is yet to be seen, but if it does remain true, that's another big title. But I think between that, Gran Turismo Seven, I can kind of get what you're saying, right? It's not a new Gran Turismo, but I think what's been kind of proven to a degree is that for the people that want Gran Turismo Seven, we don't want a new VR only Gran Turismo Seven or Gran Turismo. And part of the reason is is that we want a full-fledged, full-featured Gran Turismo title with full VR support. And now that we know that that's what's happening, that is a very exciting prospect for people that do like that. Now, you're right. It's a niche, but the question is more of a... And, and it's, it's niche. All things are niches, ultimately. And Gran Turismo is a very, very successful series. Uh, but racing is not the first thing that people go towards for VR. So I think you still have a point. Um, I think Horizon, I still have this feeling that Sony's banked a little more on Horizon than I feel is reasonable. But I still wait to see because unless I've missed it, and it's very likely impossible, I never saw them really throw out Forbidden West sales numbers. You know? So, it's kind of hard to say. It says, um, we're not tied of the famous PlayStation 5 bundle. The point is that out of the 10 million sold this year, most were bundles and most were Horizon bundles. So, it looks like a Forbidden West reportedly sold over 10 million copies. I'm going to try and find the article that's pointed to it. Play3.de. So this is a... Um, oh, interesting. This is a German site. Hmm. Bundles and everything being clear. So I guess 10 million is not bad. I mean, that's honestly pretty big for a cross-gen game as well. Um, so maybe they didn't. But I agree with you that it's not an immediate pull. Um, I did go ahead and get the bundle just to try that game out. But yeah. you said something else that I think is a better point. Um, because PlayStation 5 has been so hard to get for a lot of people, a lot of people just kind of re- relegated themselves to not worrying about it until they became readily available. Well, Sony's made a very big push the past week about the availability of PlayStation 5s and how they are basically very easy to get now. They Their, their troubles of getting supply are gone. You don't have to worry about them in the future. But that means anybody who might have been interested in PSVR 2 that did not already have a PlayStation 5 would now need to shell out 500 or 400 for a PlayStation 5 as well as 550 for the PSVR 2 without a, any game to play. And that's a very big ask. At that point, you're getting into, well, I could have just bought a computer, a, a really good computer and Oculus Quest 2 and hooked it up with a link cable or wireless and maybe have a close experience with a lot more game options. So there's a lot going for it. VR is also still just a pretty nascent thing. But one thing I thought was uh, interesting is John Carmack, who, uh, of course, used to be part of um, uh, ID uh, software. He said that he thinks the price will somewhat hold back PSVR 2 but that he's surprised that Sony have yet to show the absolute biggest, baddest VR game that you can make given their tech 
and what the PS5 can handle from a ray tracing perspective and all that. So it'll be really interesting to see if in this first year we see Sony come to bat with a trailer or an announcement for a game that does hit that level. I would really hope to see Sony swing for the fences before they relegate themselves only to the Horizon Call of the, um, Call of the Mountain or whatever style game. So we'll see what ends up being from it. But yeah, thankfully at least PlayStation 5s are easier to get now. <laughs> Maybe PSVR 2 sales go up later, regardless of how they do initially. So, um, All right, let's see. Next piece of news. Footage from a currently unannounced Horizon project, speaking of Horizon being heavily invested into, has leaked into the wild. The game seems to be aiming to slay the Wild Hearts audience and is inspired by games in that genre like it and Capcom's Monster Hunter. The game features a much different art style, leaning more towards the trappings of Fortnite and away from the typical Horizon fashion. Uh, This leaked game is in the same week as support studio Gobo is now a co-developer with Gorilla on the Horizon uh, universe. They've previously been entangled with many other high-profile studios and publishers like Tencent and WB, having recently been a part of the development for Hogwarts Legacy. Uh, So with that in mind, Chris, you saw the leak. (laughs) I know that you're not a huge Horizon fan because Forbidden West and Zero Dawn both kind of just didn't stick with you. Do you think moving away from story heavy and going towards something more Monster Hunter-like, which Monster Hunter is also a new series for you, but do you have any pull from this, any allure? No, I mean, I was kind of out on the art style alone. I was getting really sick of that art style. Um, but, I mean, if it's good, I'll try it. That's the thing with me. Like, if, if it gets good reviews and people in our Discord are saying it's great, like, of course I'm going to give it a shot. Um, but as of now, what I saw didn't make me go hell yeah the next the next big chris game is coming you know no i understand i think it's an interesting choice and i think it's clearly looking at the fact that fortnite's very successful with that art style but there's a difference between knowing your audience which playstation tends to have an audience that likes hyper realistic visuals i don't mind the art style i'd really have to see it completely in motion and one of the unfortunate things is I have not been able to find any of the videos that's still up. All of them have been pulled. So all I have to go off of is the artwork, the the concept art that seems like it's skewing more towards uh, Fortnite style. So I like that they're trying to go with something that's not so photorealistic because I'd like to see them take chances elsewhere. Um, But all that said, we're at a position where I'm willing to let this be fun and give it a try. Uh, but it is interesting to see. So I, I've i often said that I already felt like Horizon just felt like a single-player take, definitely Zero Dawn, a single-player take on Monster Hunter, where I should even say like a story-driven take on Monster Hunter uh, with no real need for multiplayer. So going this direction makes sense to me, and I'm excited to at least see it. I think that a lot of the stuff that's kind of iffy or divisive for people about horizon will be completely absent in this game due to the change in genre to a high degree, or at least a change in how they're choosing to present. So it won't be story heavy. I guess my big question with this is other than the obvious, why does this have to be horizon? Like, I don't, 
you know, like I, I feel like Sony's doing far too much with this franchise. And it's not me being someone who's like, I'm not a fan. It's me looking at it like, why do I have Horizon 1, Horizon 2, Horizon Call of the Mountain, Horizon MMO, Horizon Monster Hunter game? You're like, why are they doing all of this when it's just add another franchise? <laughs> like, you know like, the answer, why, right? Yeah, because it's popular. <laughs> We're seeing the proof right now. It's the same reason that there's a Last of Us TV show and that there's going to be a Horizon TV show. Yeah, I mean, I get it, but why wouldn't they want... But that's the thing, right? You're saying that, and I understand. You're not wrong. It's all expanding the brands, but why don't you make a new franchise with this concept and then make that a TV show? Like, could you... I mean, now I'm just pitching shit, but like, think about a new franchise where you're hunting things, and then the TV show they tie in is a Steve Irwin-esque TV show. Like, they could do cool shit like this. (laughs) I think the answer is in something that has been said for a while, and it's been said with different levels of whether it's a positive or a negative thing. And if you think back to Sean Layden talking about how much these games cost to make now versus what they used to spend on first-party games as the scope has continued to grow and games more often are trying to be these 40, 50-hour, very massive, high-scale games, I think the answer is, is that it costs too much to develop an IP to not then use the IP in a way that is sensible that can immediately use that IP's brand name to help make this game, which is also probably given a pretty high budget because of the fact that it's a Horizon game. I think there's a lot of things, right? It's easier to say, oh, Horizon multiplayer game? Well, that that's an already successful series. It's an easier pill to swallow that maybe you need $110 million to make this multiplayer game versus how we'd feel about a brand new IP being $110 million. You know, and then I think the same thing for fans is true on the inverse. Fans are going to be like, well, why should I play this new game that's kind of like Monster Hunter when Monster Hunter already exists or Wild Hearts or all these games exist? But then you can go, oh, it's Horizon. Well, I like Horizon and I like Monster Hunter. Those two things together. Yeah, I'll totally give that a try. And I think it just becomes an easier jumping on point for everyone involved from a funding standpoint to a development standpoint to a fan response standpoint. I too love that they do new IPs, but they seem to craft new IPs in a very specific way and then expound on them. Uh, Like, you know, we got, we're getting a ghost of Tsushima movie or show or whatever that we saw. We're, probably almost undoubtedly getting another Ghost of Tsushima game and we've already technically gotten a kind of Ghost of Tsushima multiplayer style, style game. Part of me wonders if one of the games as a service titles is not just a Ghost of Tsushima Legends style game that is far bigger and far more game uh, aimed at being a game as a service. So, yeah, I you know. To me, Four Horizon titles just seems insane. Not to mention Horizon 3 is probably coming. So mm-hmm. it's just, it's too much. There, There's, yes, there's brand recognition, and then there's... Too much too milking quick? The brand. Is, that, is that really a better way to specify? No, I think in, it's too much too quick, but I also think in, in general it's too much. You know, like, I don't know. if The thing that made God of War 2018 so special, in my opinion, was how long we went without God of War. 
And I'm not saying they need to stop that break. They need to make a break in Horizon and release a Horizon 3 only in five, six, seven years. But I do think there's value. There's there's a issue with oversaturating the brand. You know, if in the next four years I've played six Horizon games, that's a problem. It's a problem for Horizon. I see what you mean, but I also think it's, and I and I find myself doing it too. I think to some degree your perception is skewed from aging and when you were familiar with God of War, because God of War Ascension came out in 2013, um, uh-huh. and then God of War 2018 is five years after that, yeah. uh, and then God of War Ragnarok, right, four years, uh-huh. and Horizon between Horizon one and two is five years, sure, and yeah, we're looking at getting more. And the VR title, you're right. There's a lot happening seemingly at once, depending on how quick all this hits. Um, now, like you said, there could be a point where if you start counting from 2022 and you stop counting at 2025, is there a chance that you could have played Horizon Forbidden West, Horizon VR, Horizon Multiplayer, maybe Horizon MMO, all within that time period? Because I would imagine that Horizon 3 is probably going to be another four to five years. Uh, so when you think about it that way, in the next three years, you still could have played four Horizon titles, and that is a lot. I'll agree with you. When The Last of Us, a much more successful franchise, um, will have had in since twenty, you know, in the same, even in the same window of time, three years, you'll have had The Last of Us Part Two, and then The Last of Us Factions. Same window of time from original Last of Us. You're talking about three games (laughs) i don't know i just think the other thing to think about here is what if this game sucks and then oh absolutely could and then now horizon 3 is having to make up for a shitty game that's another problem you run into making games with games names on them just for the sake of continuing to expand that brand do you run the risk of actually hurting the brand I don't know, though, because I feel like Pokemon does this all the time, too. And Pokemon has got plenty of not great Pokemon offshoot games, and yet no one cares. Um, yeah, you're not wrong. So I don't know. I just, I don't know. But what Pokemon I don't, is not Horizon. Yeah. It just, it just isn't. For Pokemon's me. too big to even have this conversation comparing the two. Um, too big to fail. Right. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's like a bank. But the the... I guess my biggest thing is it just makes more sense to me for it to be like, okay, here's our new franchise, our new heroine, our new face of Sony. Oh, it's it's maybe it's not too successful. We're doing a Horizon crossover. Like, it's not that difficult, but to me it just seems like fitting a square peg into a round hole because you think that'll make it sell and not thinking about the potential risks to the franchise. But if the game's good, it doesn't it doesn't fucking matter. The game just has to be good. I just think they're expecting a lot out of this franchise. I would only I would only agree with the square peg round hole analogy if they were taking a franchise that was not Horizon and trying to put it to this style of game. Like if they were like, it's a game where you hunt, but it's set in the Norse wilds. It's God of War Monster Hunter. See, I'd actually think that actually makes more sense to me than Horizon. <laughs> I I guess, uh, I, I don't know, in my mind, I, maybe you haven't played enough Monster Hunter and enough 
horizon to see that there's a very clear and easy connection point for these. Like no, this I feels see like it. putting a round, you know, a round peg into a round hole, but just doing it with a brand that you're running the risk of over uh, populating the space with versus I'm not saying that there isn't a potential for a God of War hunting game to be good, but I don't think it's as obvious, which maybe is your point that something that's less obvious is inherently more interesting. No, I mean, I mean, yeah, I guess I just, again, it's a matter of not having played either. So maybe I should just stop talking, but I think there's a level of what's the, what's the story here? These are not, it's not like you can eat these monsters or these, these robot dinosaurs. So it almost, I almost wonder like, why, like, what are you doing? What's the hunting part of this game? But I don't have the experience. I'm just going to end my thing here and then we can move on because I could be completely off base with everything I'm talking about. Um, I just think the game needs to be good and I would rather have a, a new franchise at the very least, the MMO that's rumored, I don't understand why it's Horizon. That doesn't make any sense to me, but that's okay. Bring back Fairy Tale. Then my folklore. question becomes like, is there a reason for Sony to make any MMO that's not attached to one of their existing IP? That's a real question for me. I don't really know if it's worth Sony trying to make a completely original MMO in an area that is so crowded with MMOs from known quantities like world of warcraft is just an mmo of, of warcraft and then you have elder scrolls online clearly just an mmo of an existing franchise like i feel like most mmos that are very successful come from already planted series so i don't know i don't know that it would be worth sony being like yeah we're just going to completely 100 make a new ip for an mmo but at that point, maybe the question, maybe the answer is just don't make it at all. <laughs> don't make an MMO. If, uh, but I don't well, they're know. Make, they're making an MMO because if it's successful, it'll be the highest grossing thing they ever do. But I just, again, I don't understand why Horizon needs to be it. Yeah. Yeah. My bigger curiosity is whether or not this style, right? Right. Even TV shows, right? If a TV show that's connected to a game series is bad, what are the repercussions on the ser- on the game series? Like, is everybody, are gamers the main market? Are they just going to shrug it off? Did Sony just lose a lot of potential people who aren't quite gamers that could have gotten into gaming and would have been wanted to buy it? And even if they get into gaming, they're like, oh, that Twisted Metal show sucked. Maybe I wouldn't want to play the next Twisted Metal, you know? Yeah. And, and part of the reason I say that too, right, is that you were talking about like, why do you not just make something with a new IP? And my go-to example, and then we can move off of this because, like you said, um, you haven't played either. But just as a go-to good example, in my opinion, of a time where that clearly didn't work out for them is that Destruction uh, All-Stars or whatever that, show, that, that game was called by Lucid was essentially that. Hey, here's a different developer making a multiplayer car combat focused game. We have an IP that already makes sense for that and that they probably could have just made that game a little more Twisted Metal-like and changed very little else about it. And it probably would have been far more successful. But because making a new IP comes with tailoring the game to that IP, you run the risk of having a game that nobody sticks with, which is exactly what happened with Destruction All-Stars. And it was also just a and game but <laughs> i don't know 
I assume that this is probably more than anything like, hey, there's enough of a connection here and it makes it to where it's less of a risk. We'll be more likely to at least recoup our investment if there's a name tied to it. But we'll see if that stands to uh, hurt any of the reputations of the series uh, regarded to them. Uh, But moving on to the rapid fire news, speaking of Twisted Metal, Twisted Metal appears to be coming to Peacock this year. Asad Quizzlebash, that's an interesting name, (laughs) in a tweet showed the art on the walls of PlayStation Productions, which include The Last of Us and Gran Turismo. He ended the tweet about all the projects they're releasing this year with, you can't see me, but my head is on fire. The tweet includes flame emojis and clown faces. So it's pretty easy to think that through and think, hey, Twisted Metal. Um, We've already talked enough about Twisted Metal. I'm supremely curious about Twisted Metal. (laughs) I do not have Peacock, but I will probably at least try Peacock to see what they do with Twisted Metal because it's more alluring to me to see what the fuck they're doing with that than The Last of Us. But with that in mind... We have a question from my good friend, Donovan Williams, a patron. He says, do you guys think you have to consume all media related to an IP to be considered a, quote, real fan? Chris, what are your thoughts? I mean, no. Right? That's my initial take on it. Yeah. I would consider myself probably one of the biggest Marvel fans you know but I ain't watching some of those TV shows. Like I just don't got the time or the interest. Like I don't give a fuck about She-Hulk. So like, yeah, I don't, I don't think so. I think there's levels like, like honestly, I, I think given the quality, the fact that you're not watching the last of us is fucking insane, but I don't think that makes you less of a fan of the last of us. (laughs) So it's funny you say that the whole point of this question was asked as I'm aware is that in the same day, five minutes apart, I had two of my friends reach out to me after episode three of The Last of Us and say, are you watching The Last of Us? And I said no to both of them. And uh, both of them listened to the podcast, so I guess they just were unsure if I stuck to my guns about not watching it. But just to make that clear, I'm not. it's not like a stick to my guns, like I'm not watching it out of principle. I have other things to do and other shows to watch and other games to play that I'd rather spend that time doing that to make it clear. My wife mentioned that she might want to watch the last of us. And I said, if you do, I'll gladly watch it with you. But if she doesn't want to watch it, then it's not anywhere on my list of things to do. Does that make sense? Do you want my honest answer? (laughs) Sure. No, it doesn't make any sense, (laughs) but that's fine. Well, no, why do you I feel think, that way? Well, I think given what we do, and the, again, the it, like I'll tell you right now, I think it's better than the shows, uh, than the game, and I think it's one of the best TV shows I've ever seen. So just off the basis of those three things, I think it's kind of crazy that you're not watching it, but I also don't begrudge you not watching it. Like, don't you don't have to fucking watch the TV show. That's fine. But I just think, again, it's one of those like land. In my opinion, so far, it's literally like a landmark television show that we'll be talking about for years that I think will outlast the games. Like I already episode three, I think it's straight up better than The Last of Us Part Two. Like, I, I, I don't know why I'm talking about Last of Us Part Two, but I think that in terms of The Last of Us Part One and the TV show, I would tell someone to watch the show over play the game as of episode three could fall apart, but. 
I think that I, again, to me, it's quality. Like The Last of Us is one of those rare shows that I think everyone should watch at least so far. But I don't think you really need to turn into tune into She Hulk. You know, it's just about quality. And see, I would go into that, which of course we all know quality is is super um, objective or subjective rather. Um, there are, of course, points that you can clearly point to that are objective uh, ideas of what quality could be. And I think clearly The Last of Us hits a lot of those. But um, what I think is real interesting about that is I, I guess from my own perspective, I don't watch a lot of TV anyway. And I don't watch a lot of shows that people always act like are must-watch shows. I've never seen anything in Game of Thrones past season one. I didn't care for season one, so I just quit watching. I've never seen a single episode of The Walking Dead all the way through. I've like caught people watching it whenever I've been at houses and watched like three minutes here or there. That's a bad show, so that's okay. Yeah, I'm not saying it's like the epitome of TV. But my point being is that I don't watch most shows to begin with. So it doesn't feel that out of character for me to not watch The Last of Us outside of your point. I think that there is the expectation that since we do a PlayStation podcast, I've got to be slobbering all over this. But it just doesn't really strike my interest. I'm not even know? saying slobbering all over it. Oh, that that's more of me talking to other people. I can understand why other people would be like, well, you kind of like the joke I, I told, uh, I think it was Blake while we were playing Chivalry 2. You might have been on. Uh, but one of the one of our listeners reached out to me. I guess they didn't realize because I haven't said it in a while. They were like, um, hey, how many like environments or whatever are there in Returnal? And I was like, oh, I didn't beat it. Um, so I'm not sure, but I feel like I remember four being what I heard, maybe five. And he sent back jokingly, but he was like, what? You run a PlayStation podcast and you didn't, pl- you didn't beat and platinum a Sony game. And I was like, yeah, it happens. <laughs> like there, yeah. there are Sony games I'm not that interested in. Um, and I, I just have to continue to say it's not a value judgment, but going back to the question, you know, this idea of, uh, do you have to do these things to be a real fan? Much like you, I think, it's a really dangerous idea because that's like saying that you have to play, watch, consume everything to be a Pokemon fan. You have to play every Pokemon game that's ever existed, all of the Mystery Dungeon games, the fucking Pokemon Cafe game. You've got to play Unite. You've got to read every po- manga. You've got to watch every episode of the of every series they've put out and watch every movie. And I think that's ultimately kind of stupid. So for anybody that really looks at things that way, I'm not calling you stupid so much as I'm saying, look at that. Think about the thought process there and the amount of time people have. The whole point of having multimedia is you have different points in which people can establish their fandom and then it can grow from there. But I don't think anybody ever makes something and thinks every Pokemon fan is going to watch this because it's Pokemon and they have to. That's not really the way creators work. I think that's like saying that, you like a band, do you have to listen to every album they put out? I love Law Dispute. They're one of my favorite bands, and that's off of literally one album. I don't ever listen to any of their other albums, but I listen to somewhere between the River, Vega, whatever. It's a dumb name for an album. It's not dumb. It's long, and I always have trouble remembering it. But I love that band. It would tell you in a heartbeat that you should listen to them, and I literally like one album. So I don't know. I just... 
it, the reality is, is that you can like things without liking the totality of it uh, or even being interested in the totality of it. No, a hundred percent. And just to clarify with you, for you, like, and uh, not to sound flipping about what we do for me, my comment is more about that shit was just, that shit's just easy content. Right. That's why for me, when I was like, you host a place, we host a PlayStation podcast. I'm like, that's a fucking easy podcast to put out you know, once a week. So that was more my point. Like, I, I don't have any space to talk. When's the last PlayStation exclusive I've liked? That's not what, yeah, what exactly. we're here. That's not what we're here doing. We're here talking about video games and we both play on PlayStation. Right. And I'm yeah. sorry that some people, sometimes people don't like that. 90% of these games, I'm like, yeah, this isn't really my thing. Horizon's too big. God of War. Don't like what I have to do in a third of that game. So that's just how it is for me. So I'm not, I would never say that you have to do anything, right? Yeah, I don't give a shit what you do. Just straight up. 30 minute spoiler cast once a week was is easy content. So I think, and I think that's the thing. You look at a lot of content creators and they're doing that. So, um, and it's because it is, and that's fine. And I, but I don't think that makes us less of PlayStation fans. Kind of turn rolling it into the question, right? Just because we yeah. host a PlayStation show and you're not watching The Last of Us, despite me thinking you're insane, that's fine. Like that's not neither one of us is forcing the other one to do anything. You know, even when I, I messaged you and I was like, I don't know if I'm going to finish Forspoken, but if you want me to, I'll do it for the spoiler. I'll do it and we can do a spoiler chats. And you were like, yeah, maybe it would be a good idea. But I don't think you expect if I end up not liking, it, I don't think you expect me to force my way. Yeah. through. Yeah. And that's probably to uh, the detriment of our potential to reach with the show. But, you know, I really approach this podcast and the idea of doing it like I'm just going to be honest about what I don't like and, and what I don't have interest in and if i don't feel excited to watch the last of us which i genuinely don't i i, I don't mean that i'm like hating or anything i just i don't have it. the most excited just for the context of where the question even came from the moment that i saw that they were doing an episode with bill and i realized that instead of being in the game where you are going to not let the perspective move from joel and or ellie um that that means that they could Basically, instead of doing the stories version of Bill where it's hinted at his relationship, they can instead just show you a day in the life of that relationship. That's a great idea. And it's one of the only episodes that actually pulls me into doing it because it's I get that everything in the show is a little different because it's trying to be it's trying to give you a reason to want to watch to a degree. But I'm only truly interested in watching when the show deviates strongly and shows me completely un you know, mostly unscratched stuff and since bill's relationship was a very minor aspect and they never even outright say it it's a, it's a subtext thing more or less yeah. um in that game that's an interesting use of the show so if i was even going to watch an episode watching episode three by itself would be something i'd be more likely to do than watch the rest of the series because i know the story well enough and it's not going to change for the most part enough for me to feel motivated to watch it and that's fine that's not a quality uh, knock on the show or anything. It's gonna for people that like re-experiencing stories without having to play it. Bam! You have a new, slightly different way of doing that. That's probably fantastic. It's got a great crew. HBO is clearly known for their quality. Bam! You have everything you'd want if you're into that. Like, I'd be. I'm more surprised. And Blake is more of a movie. He's more of a cinephile than I think a, a long form TV fan. Um, so if Blake isn't watching The Last of Us, it's not that surprising to me. 
you know what I'm saying? Like yeah. he clearly loves TV. He, he loves the the aspect of creating uh, moving images that you do not interact with, and rather you just experience them. Um, but TV shows seem to mostly be outside of his purview. From you know, he, he spends time looking at things that are crafted to be watched in a single sitting for the most part. Um, and I think that's interesting. So. Yeah, if the time ever comes where I become legitimately excited about the prospect of watching The Last of Us or a random you know, itch happens and I watch the first episode and that plants that seed, I'll gladly do so. Uh, but I'm going to go ahead and tell everybody right now, there's a lot of PlayStation Productions content that I'm probably not going to watch. Yeah, I mean, that goes back to the quality thing, you know? Yeah. I don't. I've said it before. I don't have faith in Twisted Metal. <laughs> yeah. Well, like, ironically, I'm more interested in Twisted Metal because it's completely unknown. So, yeah. my rule of thumb will be that the the less it's something I already feel familiar with, the more enticing it is for me to want to go out and see what it's about. Now that after that first episode, it could suck and I could bounce out. Um, hopefully, they're smart and do more than one episode as the launch for it, like uh, Kenobi did. Because I'll tell you right now, Kenobi was fine and it was pretty good. But if I would have had only the first episode of Kenobi to watch day one, I would have just not watched the rest of that series. It had it, Episode two being much better is what saved that little mini-series for me. Um, so I'm not very shy about just not doing things I'm not interested in. And uh, Chris, just like you, if you wanted to do a Forspoken spoiler cast, because, of course, as a content creator, it's easy to see how it's easy content. But I never want to do something just because it's easy content. I want to do yeah. it because I wanted to do it. That's it. Absolutely. So maybe we'll make one. Maybe we won't. We'll have to just see. Um, continuing on, the death spiral of E3 may now be in its terminal phase. Sources have indicated to IGN that all three of the major platform holders, holders rather, will again be skipping the show. The show has seen middling support in recent years with Sony and Nintendo dropping out entirely for their own live streams and with Microsoft seemingly following their lead this year. It's hard to imagine what E3 can really offer. That's a shame. Because, you know, we were talking uh, Velvet in the Discord. And I do have crazy good memories with E3 experiences where something happens and you're just super hyped. But as the need for E3 and that type of showcase has waned because game makers realize they can do things on their own pace much cheaper and not have to waste the man hours that go into creating these things... And flying all these people out, I get why they're gone, but I will long for the days when E3 was like supreme, you know? I agree. Kind of how I feel about PS uh, PlayStation Experience. I miss that with all my heart. And I think that there's a reason for it to come back because it's fan outreach, which is not what E3 was. Um, and that's not something that you can replicate in your own live stream, you know? Mm-hmm. I completely agree with but, that. Yeah, I mean, are you real hit by this, or do you just kind of view this as E3's hitting, but Summer Game Fest is just going to be an adapted, evolved form of that same itch to scratch, but with people not doing full showcases in it, instead just being able to be, we're still going to do our own showcases, but we may throw you a, a game or two to be part of your world premieres that happen during this, just to give it a little bit of heat, you know? I mean, for me, the saddest part about it leaving is that you don't have that week of here it comes, here's more, here's more, here's more. You know, you don't have 
hey, we got to watch Microsoft in the morning and Sony at night. Like that kind of stuff was really fun. Um, but in the end, it doesn't really matter. You know, it's, it's, yeah, I mean, you're right. It's just they're all doing their own live streams. I'm, I'm seeing everything that I wanted already for the most part, you know. It's hard to describe, but I feel like this is a decent um, comparison point in that I think part of the fun of E3, not even for like raging fanboyism, but just for the fun of seeing how each, uh, definitely for the major platform holders, seeing how each one is going to come out and how they're going to stack up to the people that came before or after them. That's why it was always really interesting. It was like, Microsoft's going to go first. Ooh, that's going to set Sony up to be able to potentially make everyone forget about Microsoft if they can really knock it out of the park, or vice versa, right? Oh, Microsoft's going to move to the day after Sony? That means they might be able to steal the show and keep everyone's memory. And it felt like the Super Bowl in the sense that, yeah, it's not competitive, and it's not seeing people go out there, but it does have this feeling of like, when it's there and you have these set hours that you're going to watch it and it doesn't change and you know it's the same day and you know both those people are there, it's kind of just fun seeing how each one's going to try and one-up the other because there's like a showmanship to it. Like, we're going to make sure our showcase really knocks out of the park because we're going to be compared to Xbox because it's the same event. Whereas when you take that away and you do it all just as a kind of cold, calculated live stream that you do completely separate from an event, Microsoft does theirs in their own style. Sony does theirs in their own style. But they don't really feel like they're competing in that friendly, Mm -hmm. we're all on the same stage kind of space. So it feels like if they just went like, well, we're not doing the Super Bowl anymore. We're just going to let you watch all the games that would have otherwise led up to the Super Bowl. And it's, you know, it's unfortunate because I did like that time of the year. Like you said, Chris, that week-long thing. E3 would always fall on my birthday week and often <laughs> PlayStation showcase would fall on my birthday day. And it was just like, this feels like a birthday present because it's exciting and you're excited to get home. Just like people are when they are like, Oh, the Super Bowl's coming. I got to be home at this time to watch it without fail. And you want to be part of it because you don't want to mm-hmm. miss out on it. That doesn't really exist in the same way to me. I'm not as excited about a state of play Because it's just kind of like, I feel like I can just work and then watch that later. Whereas E3, if it was like, hey, PlayStation's going to be showing at 12 o'clock, I'm like, I'm taking a half day at work. We're going to make a whole thing of this. We're going to get pizza and watch this. And it felt like the Super Bowl for games, even more so than I feel like the Game Awards does, in my honest opinion. Yeah. um, I mean, I think it doesn't even matter what they try or how hard they try because it's kind of moved away from what it was in the beginning. You know, Mm. keep in mind that E3 was a show for Walmart. And... Yeah, it's a trade show. Right. So, when you... When we're now at a point where Sony, Microsoft, and Nintendo can all hop on Twitch and spend 30 minutes doing a live stream and that's or 30 minutes to an hour hour and a half and they don't have to 
spend all of this money and 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 fly all these people out and waste Jim Ryan's time. You know, time is a valuable thing, and it's easy. Watch it fly it's by as the pendulum swings. You fucked it up. I was trying to do a whole in the end thing with my little monologue here. <laughs> I only even did it because you sung it before we even started recording. So it was already on my head. <laughs> I, I have the lyrics up. I was tailoring my response. But hey, I'm you know serious, what? Go though. ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I'm serious, though, because. Time, time. Regardless of the joke, time is a valuable thing. So, bringing yeah. Jim Ryan to California to spend five minutes on stage to introduce these things, to have Herman Holst there, to have all these people present awards, it's just cheaper overall to not do that, you know. And <laughs> we're watching. E3 be flown by the rest of all of this stuff. All of these other live streams are just a lot easier for them to do, and the pendulum is swinging that way. So at the end of the day, the clock ticks E3's life away, and it's so unreal. (laughs) Beautiful. Moderately successful on my part, I think. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I see where you're coming from. Yeah. I'm smelling what you're stepping in, Chris. Yeah. I'm smelling what you're stepping in. Yeah, you know, I, I think that the only thing I would say is that E3 being a physical event, even if you weren't physically there, it permeates through the video that you're watching, that live stream, that le- that crowd reaction, how the crowd plays off of what's happening on the stage. And all of that is absent from a... Mm-hmm curated live stream like that. And I think, you know, I talked about how you can't, you can't replicate fan outreach and interaction in the same way across those events. And I think about that because some of the biggest times where I felt like PlayStation was just really excelling and making sure they felt like they had community outreach and they were talking to PlayStation fans as a whole was during the PSX showcases that they did, the keynotes, and then the E3s. Like having uh, Sean Layden come out and have the the actual crowd interact with him, having them notice that he's wearing a Crash Bandicoot shirt, having all of these different layers that keep stacking up, and then things like the little joke that they had where they filmed the, this is how you share games with your friends. All of that happens because of the camaraderie that kind of comes with being in this physical space and working yeah. with each other. And when you pull all that apart, even if it's beneficial in some ways, you do lose some soul. And I feel like I can say that PlayStation has lost some soul that it had from the PS3 and early to mid PS4 era. Ever since Jim Ryan has kind of taken over, PlayStation feels far more businesslike and far more soulless. And I know that for dollar signs and and shareholders, that's probably the right move um, in the short term at the very least. But in the long term, I do wonder what having that feeling of fan outreach and community that lacks in these state of plays and PlayStation showcases, what does that do? You know, what is the actual long-term impact of that? Um, And whether that's, you know, 
E3 is probably dying by its own hands in a lot of ways, but it's unfortunate that something has it come in and take its place because he's talked about E3 starting as a trade show. And even though it was that for about a 10 year stretch, E3 became a trade show that was heavily skewed towards trying to excite fans. Mm -hmm. And you could tell that because you went from like seeing Kaz Harai on stage talking about sales numbers for PlayStation with a spreadsheet and a PowerPoint, which was exciting if you're a fan to see that it's doing well. But you see those last like six or seven years of E3s that Sony had and all of that went by the wayside. It wasn't about that. It was it was game, game, game. Something to make people realize, hey, we're reaching out to the community. We're showing love. Here's a, here's the Indies. Here's a Geo with a PS Vita in hand, doing nothing but talking about his love for the Vita, not how many units the Vita sold. We're just talking about the fact that he loves this little thing, and we're gonna put that in the PS Experience keynote because you know what? It kind of makes sense. This is about the love of PlayStation. All of that's gone, and a yeah. lot of those people are gone, and that's unfortunate. I will throw out there, I do feel like for all the things that I don't love about Phil Spencer and the the way that he tries to talk, he is far more personable and I feel like Xbox feels like they have more of a community outreach from their head people, their head, you know, their executive people than I feel like Sony does from their heads. Sony does a great job of letting people like Corey Barlog and whatnot have a online identity that they can kind of have fun with and they create that connection there thankfully but it doesn't feel as top down as it once did and i feel like xbox is trying to fill that niche because they realize how well it worked for playstation when they were trying to turn the tide (laughs) towards being in their favor um but chris i think we're down to our last piece of news here naughty dog is moving away from uncharted which should not surprise anyone they've said this time and again But no one wanted to believe him. Neil Druckmann indicated that the studio has moved on from Uncharted and could very well do the same with The Last of Us, assuming they wanted to. He says Sony wouldn't pressure them into making a sequel and that he would only want to make a sequel if they felt like there was a compelling game that they all wanted to make. Um, This is not surprising. No. But it does bring with it a question that comes from one of our patrons, Rude Days 93 and he points to another series that faced a similar fate while being very important to their console holder. Not as important, but he asks, so if Uncharted goes to another studio, do you worry about a Halo effect and the franchise quality suffering? So, of course, he's talking about Bungie leaving, Halo going to 343, and being a somewhat controversial rocky series ever since that's happened mm-hmm. um, every game is met with some level of criticism or dislike do you feel like that's something that would happen uh that sony would push to have happen here because uncharted is a very big system uh seller or at least was and you know, a very big mascot or do you think sony would resist that temptation no, I think, I mean, we didn't talk about this in the news, but they're clearly teasing another Uncharted game in their new commercial. So I think that this is, it's going to happen. There's been lots of rumors of it happening regardless. Um, I think it just, you have to make sure you put the right team in place. And I think it's very clear now 
that 343 was the wrong set of people or the wrong managers, whatever you want to blame it on. But clearly 343 was not the team to shepherd Halo. And honestly, you can't take... It's, it's, it's an impossible task to expect a team to follow up games by the single... One of the single best first-person shooter developers of all time. And then be like, yeah, you gotta, you gotta continue making games that good. You can't do it. You know? So I almost think that they should have just been like, you know what? Master Chief, he's still in space. We're gonna make a different type of game for the Halo franchise. And then that's what I would do. But instead, they tried to follow in the footsteps of Bungie without the writing chops and without the development chops, clearly. So I think that's where it fails. I think if Sony's going to go to, let's say that Sony San Diego rumor is true and they're working on Uncharted, you better damn well hope that they got the right people in there. That's all I'm worried about. Hmm. Yeah, I think of it that it's possible, right? It is possible to do this correctly. And I think Halo is so interesting because I was a Halo fan. And then when 343 took over, I remember that 4 was a game that was hit a lot for its multiplayer, which is important because it's one of the biggest aspects of Halo. But of course, the story and lore is too. But I loved Halo 4, story and multiplayer, even if the multiplayer was... A, a departure and part of the reason i liked it it was a departure is because of what you talked about right you're following up bungie and instead of following up bungie by making a game that feels like you tried to make the same type of game but you missed instead use the character in the world and the weapons but change it up and make a different feeling multiplayer that's not so uh, arena you know arena fighter set up as halo had been in the past because at least then it doesn't look like you swung and you missed it's like mm-hmm. you swung and you hit, but you were just swinging at something completely different um, on purpose. But that didn't go over well, right? So then they tried to course correct and tried making five. And I don't think five really succeeded at all. And then they go into infinite, which is actually uh, arguably probably the best Halo game they've made. I think I might actually like four more from a story perspective and um even maybe a uh, multiplayer in Infinite was pretty fucking great. It's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I can't really say anything about that. Um, but, uh, you know, the story in Infinite's fun enough, but it has a bland, boring open world uh, that is not as fun to move around as Forspoken or Ghostwire is because all you have is a single interesting thing in the grappling hook, but even uninteresting world. Um, so you got to make sure it's super fun to move around if you're going to have an uninteresting open world. But yeah, I think we, I would say that they've done this, right? Where they've let someone else make a game already. They did that with Ben Studio. And outside of a few things that are Vita specific because they were trying to use that system, I think that for the most part, Ben understood with the help of Naughty Dog overseeing it to a degree. I think that Ben made a fantastic Uncharted game that while maybe not quite as good as the best of that series was at least better than even the worst entry in that series, which I believe is uncharted one personally. Um, I think that you could say that um, golden abyss is as good, if not even better than uncharted one. Um, I think both of those are fair statements. So the question becomes with a franchise like uncharted, 
if you can find a developer that can consistently make a game that's as good, if not better, than Uncharted 1, Uncharted 4, whatever game you want to put it on, uh, whichever game you think is their best, is probably not a good one to uh, <laughs> to try and expect. But if they can make a consistently ga- a game that's consistently as good or better than Uncharted 1, is that a success? I think Naughty Dog left himself an out. And it's not, we're not hiding. I mean, do we want to spoil the ending of Uncharted 4 at this point? Has it been long enough? Well, I mean, I'm already saying that it's clearly not going to be Drake. So take that for what you will. Um, they introduced Drake. An, they introduce enough threads that can be pulled on to go that, further to, to with do different people. And they could do it with a man, they could do it with a woman. They could do it with multiple women. They could do it with maybe less than multiple men. So, I mean, there's there's ways that they that they left. They ended Drake's story. They did not end Uncharted's story. Um, so I think that it's very clear that they can do more. It's again for me. It's just. I think a matter the question of, there becomes whether Uncharted has whether or not it can technically exist separate of Drake was the charm of Uncharted mostly on the back of Drake and characters he interacted with. And I think that you can reasonably look at Lost Legacy as proof of concept that you can make an Uncharted game that's very fun and mostly feels at home while still taking some risk and not including Drake. Exactly. So one thing you said about 343, right, was that they maybe could have... looked at making, hey, we're going to not touch the legacy of Master Chief. We're going to let that be the end of his story. But we're still going to operate within the world of Halo. Maybe we're going to look at another super soldier. Maybe we're going to do something different. And maybe that's the saving grace here, is that if they're not trying to go on continuing using Drake forever, since the game is realistic, and there's no... It's a grounded experience for the most part. You can't use Drake forever. It would literally pull from the realisticness of the title, eventually you're going to feel like, oh, it's too much. So if you do what they did and start, and you make sure you put a, a pin in it early and you stop it uh, before it becomes laughable, you have a way to pivot and make a game that is uncharted while having the creative freedom to do enough different to where it can be interesting and good and basically do what God of War did. Now, it's not a great example because Kratos did move from the original games to the new one, but no one's mad that God of War continued on in a completely different style. In fact, God of War is probably as big as ever because of its change to a different style. If they can do that with Uncharted while still doing it with a new character, that would be incredible to see. It would be. I wish them luck. I hope it works. I love the Uncharted franchise, so... I do want it to be successful. I realize Microsoft has... The Coalition has been arguably far more successful, but Microsoft has a tendency of making a studio, creating it to only exist in order to continue a singular franchise, and then making sure they name it after something in that franchise, in that world, in that series... And it's interesting to see that we had both because most people seem to think Gears 4 and 5 are pretty good. If nothing else, they're really pretty games. I do know people that don't think they're as good as Gears 1 through 3. 
But I think that the coalition has been far more successful with gears than three, four, three has been with halo. hundred percent in terms of consistency at the very least. Um, but gears is arguably a less iconic franchise than halo. So to your point, Chris, it's all about whose shoes you're filling, but Naughty mm-hmm. Dog can be potentially scary shoes to fill. Much the same as Bungie is a scary developer to have a follow-up as well. So we'll see. I don't know. I'm, I'm not... I'm worried about it, but I just think it depends, you know? I, I'm an outlier on another time where this has happened. I liked Sly 4, Sly Thieves in Time. Do I think it's as good as the the Sucker Punch Sly games? No, but I really enjoyed it, and I would have loved to see Sly 5. And we're probably not going to get it, and that's unfortunate. But my worries were fine. I mean, there's a few odd choices from a writing perspective, but most of them I was able to roll with, and I enjoyed it. The same could very well be true of the next Uncharted game from a different developer. So, And I wish them luck and hope it happens. Chris, here we are. You ready? I'm ready. Got two questions here. You ready, sir? Oh, boy. They didn't fit in nicely anywhere else. So Jehudi MD, one of our patrons, asked, what is your opinion about Housemarque's legacy throughout PlayStation's history? Do you like their approach to games? Any favorites? Mine were their first one, and a means first one with PlayStation, if I'm not mistaken, Super Stardust and Returnal. Great shooters is what he said. Now, Chris, how much experience do you have with Housemarque? I've played a good amount of their games. Um, I've played Stardust, Resogun, Dead Nation, and Returnal. And nope, that wasn't them. Never mind. So those are the ones I've played. <laughs> I okay, was thinking so of, how do you uh, feel about Hell Divers? Oh yeah, Hell Divers does feel like a game they'd make, though. If it I'm being does. Honest. It does. Again, outside looking in, I've not played Hell Divers, but every time I've seen it, I'm like, that feels up House Marks Alley. Yeah, from what it's I've a house park game. So, how do you feel about this? Um, I mean, it's weird because I think they're an essential studio, but I also think that they fill a very weird niche, and they're they're coming up on doing bigger things with Returnal being a much more triple A game, but they're almost filling in a first party indie niche if that makes sense and i think that's awesome Agreed. that's very important stuff like how stuff on xbox like hi-fi rush and stuff like that are kind of what i would equate to what housemark's contribution were and while those might not be big games like uncharted and the last of us and mlb the show i do think small bite-sized experiences like that are very essential so that are high quality. Exactly. Yeah. I see that. Do you have any favorite games from them? I mean, Stardust is Chef's Kiss Immaculate. <laughs> okay. Uh, I've played Resogun. Uh, not a whole lot. Uh, my beginning of uh, playing Housemark games is actually really, it's PS3, but it's not a PlayStation game. Uh, it's a game that they made with Ubisoft as the publisher called Outland that was given out free as a PS plus game on PS three. And I've been a PS plus subscriber since um, the service first launched on PlayStation three. 
So I remember I played it there, and it's a platformer game with a very stylized art, which is pretty par for the course for them. Most of their games are heavily stylized. Um, so that's like my beginning of them, but I've actually very scatteredly played their games, right? Because I thought Next Machina looked interesting, but I didn't get to play it. Matterfall looked interesting, didn't play it. Alienation, I didn't think looked that great for what I was looking for in a game, so I just skipped it. Mm-hmm. I did play Returnal, of course, and I've tried Super Stardust on, uh, if, if I'm not mistaken, that was a Vita. They did Super Stardust HD as a Vita title, and I played a bit of it. So I think that they're an important studio for the same thing Chris is talking about. I think them and Pixel Opus and uh, Japan Studio had a lot of smaller studios uh, or smaller internal teams for a while that I think were filling that very important internal first party but indie size and scale uh, role because I think games like Concrete Genie are really great and exude PlayStation without having to be $70 AAA must-play blockbuster games like i would argue that a lot of them are must play but they're not as important to reach 10 million users as much as 1 million very devout users uh so i would i'd say unfortunately i don't have any favorites because i have a scattered history with them but i think that they have a very important legacy on playstation and i'm not surprised at all the playstation bought them um clearly it was the right choice and returnal's done well for them even if i Love Returnal, and it feels super great to play. It's one of my, it's one of the best feeling shooters I've ever played. I just don't like the game design at launch. I need to go back and try it again, but it's asking too much of me. <laughs> That's basically where I, I agree. I so, can't do it. I want to, but I can't. Maybe Chris. Maybe the way maybe. that we get through this in the I wanna is that we co-op it since it is co-opable now. Yeah, we could definitely try that. <laughs> I am with you. I don't know if it's going to push anything, but that game does feel amazing. Blake had the same complaint. He, we were, while it's we were playing long. Chivalry, he was saying like the moment that he got through the final boss of the first area, finally, right the the big boss, and then he got oh. to the second area, and then he died, and he realized he had to restart from the very beginning. He was like, "Oh, oh no!" <laughs> and I kind of agree. You know, like my my take on Returnal being able to scratch the itch in a weird way would be to be a faux roguelite to where each biome, if you die within that biome, you have to restart from the beginning of that biome. But once you beat the boss, that's an anchor point. And if you die in the second realm, even at the final boss, if you don't beat him, you restart at the beginning of the second biome. I just think it's easier uh, Okay, that's just a weird conversation. It's an easier ask for people because of the fact that beating that game can take you a six-hour run that you can screw up at the very end and then you have to restart. And I'm, that's probably a little hyperbole, but it's not that far off. Because I had runs off. that were like three hours and I got to the end of the second biome and I was and died at the beginning of the third and was like, I don't want to do that again. I'm, I, just, I just don't. So Yeah, I don't good know question, though. what it was about Returnal, but I've lost hours in dead cells and not cared but it was like insulting in returnal and i don't know if maybe it's the perspective uh maybe that's a thing where i was just you know it's an 8-bit smaller type game so it felt like i wasn't wasting time and this game felt like something i i needed to progress i don't know how to really cut that cord if that makes sense but 
Yeah, no, I've got it because it's the same thing. I Dead Cells was one of my favorite games that year, and I played it nonstop. I'd play for like eight hours, yeah, <laughs> and and loved it. But here's the difference: you iterate, you iterate runs much quicker in those games. It's a game that's designed to have you feel that if you do die in the middle of a run, at most you were spending an hour in that run because like. The run to complete Dead Cells, if you get to where you're good at it, is about an hour and 15 minutes. I beat Dead mm-hmm. Cells. Um, and that's a very different thing than saying, well, to beat this game, your run, even if you're really good and you get to it, it's probably going to be hours. So getting reset is not losing 45 minutes and being able to quickly get back up to speed and get to where you're going. It's a much larger like, Oh, okay. Now I've got to do the same. I got to redo what I just spent three hours doing. You don't iterate quick enough for it to, for it to hit that dopamine receptor that I think smaller games like Hades and dead cells hit. Cause I did the same with Hades. I'd play Hades for like six, seven hours. Yeah. Absolutely. But a good run in Hades is an hour. Mm-hmm. Like I, I beat Hades on one run in like an hour 20 maybe. Yeah, and I think one of the things with Returnal is because it was so long, you would kind of feel your progress less, you know? Hmm? In of Hades, course. I could always feel I was getting better. I never felt that way after a run in Returnal. Yeah, that's true. Like your skill level was not obviously creeping up at the same rate. And part of that's because iteration uh, yet again, right? Like if the next run you're going to try and use a different gun, you're going to shake it up and use different weapons. Well, okay, you've got to spend three hours with that weapon now, but you're not getting to iterate different weapons. So it's less likely that you're quickly going to find the weapon combo setup that you like. Whereas Hades, if you die, you get a chance to completely re-roll those dice. Okay, what boosts, what boons am I going to get? Oh, mm-hmm. cool. I got this boon this time and this boon. And I've got this weapon. I'm going to try this out and see how this works. And then you die 15 minutes in. You're like, okay, cool. But dying 15 minutes into Returnal was even... I don't know which one's worse. Dying 15 minutes in or dying three hours in. They both feel awful because you're just like, fuck. To me. It's it's very weird. I, I love Returnal and I hate it. I think it's a great game and I can see why people who wanted to, de- like, to dedicate that time really love that experience. I just couldn't bring myself to do it. Yeah, I get that. Can't fight you on it. One day. All right, last question to end out the episode. Velvet Thunder, normally who I've been putting at the beginning of the episodes. I chose to wrap the episode up with him, another patron. He says, which two video game characters would you most like to be your parents? Bear in mind that while you will still be you, you would take on attributes of your parents. That's a it's a question and a half. I don't know that I have a good answer, Brad. Um, so I've landed on my dad being the father from Octodad. <laughs> okay. And I'll tell you why. If we're looking at him, right, I'm, I'm going to take on some of his attributes. Uh-huh. A, we know that even though he's an octopus in this world, he can still present himself as a human. So in case I happen to have any octopus parts, I'll still be good. But assuming more that the attributes that I'll take on are more personality and or whatever, I'll I'll say personality traits, right? He's a fiercely loyal man who loves his family and will do whatever it takes to not get caught and ruin the dream that he's been living. I think those are good qualities. He's also really silly 
and I consider myself silly to begin with. I like to goof around with my wife and my kid. And so I just, I feel like I already have some kinship with Octodad. So if he became my father figure, I think that that would be a, a, a fun, interesting, and very bizarre fatherhood to have. Now, where I've been trying to figure out is, do I want to double down on ridiculous for the mother? Or do I want to choose something for the mother that's a bit more sensible to balance out how crazy Octodad is? Right? Yeah, that's fair. Um, that's what I've been trying to mull over. Do you have, a, you have anything on either side of the mother or father? I feel like you'd want to go slightly less crazy. You'd have to. It's funny. The first thing that came to my mind was GLaDOS. And I'm like, that's just the opposite spectrum of crazy. <laughs> Dude, but then think about what you'd look like as a half robot, half optical octopus <laughs> man. That sounds fucking cool, actually. If we're being honest, that sounds like a cool sci-fi character. But also, I like to think that the the absurdness of Octodad and the extreme psychopathness of GLaDOS would somehow meet in the middle in a way where like every time GLaDOS would try and kill me as my mother, Octodad would be like making sure I was safe and alive. And also if I'm not mistaken, can't octopus like regrow part of their tentacles and stuff. So it would make me safer because if she were to be able to hurt me to some degree, there's a high chance of survival on my part. Yeah. But GLaDOS is your mother. Would she be trying to hurt you? Do you think that GLaDOS would be stable even in a motherly figure? <laughs> She's only stable hey as a potato, my guy. Some people <laughs> don't mean, bring their work home with them. It's a good point. Mm-hmm. But also, she's a mother. She's a robot. So why would she view me any differently? It's a good point. Unless she's going to be like the all mother from... Uh, which is a, a robot character who is in the Coed and Cambria universe in the uh, Ascension Descension era, where it's like she asks all these questions about like I don't understand why you would do this. Is this what love is? So like maybe if she's using her robot insight to be like, well, hold on, this is what love is supposed to be. So I have to try and replicate it. I don't know. Yeah, but you know what's love got to do with it? Yeah, what is love? GLaDOS, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me no more. I need to replay Portal 2 soon. That's a great game. It is a great game. Um, I'm trying to think of my answer. It's hard. <gasps> the mom from Biomutant. She's super cool. Moomzy. That's, All right. That's the game. <laughs> Mooma? Oh, is it Moom? Is it? I'm trying to remember the weird names they give the, the parents in Biomutant. Um, man, I'm struggling this with this a little bit, but I think Muma and Popsy. Oh, okay. So I think for me, because I don't have a great answer, I'm thinking of the two most ridiculous ones I can come up with as a match. And I'm going to go with humans because I don't want to be an animal hybrid. So hold on. When you say match, are you talking like you're matchmaking, like you're behind the scenes, like these traits might line up with each other, even though they're crazy? No, I just think from an outside, like as someone who's not their child, I think it would be funny. So for me, I'm going with uh, Kratos and Princess Peach. (laughs) 
Okay. Yeah. All right. I think you know what? Answer. I think a fun. I think a fun community's take that's kind of in the spirit of this would be play matchmaker with game, video game characters. <laughs> it would be. And yeah, you try and come up with what you think is a good loving <sighs> fit and why for and, for characters or even a non-loving fit, like just something that works. Arrange the marriage. Yeah, no, because even when you think about <laughs> what I would gain from my parents, right? I would be a, a demigod or a half god and I would be a sure. prince. Bro, yes, you would. It's why well, hold on. Is the daughter of a princess a still a prince? Or does he only become a prince once she becomes queen? I you mean, know, I we don't have royalty that, in, the, in, in America, so yeah, it's not I'm not as abreast nation. on this as I should be. Um No, I I mean I think at the very least I would eventually become a, a prince. You'd be royalty regardless, right? Yeah. Because I mean like exactly. if you're the if you're the daughter of a princess, you're still daughter of royalty, right? Yeah, I mean, in the end, like, I'm also son of a god, so it doesn't matter. Like, I'm all Is it weird that and I'm, and we I'm view, maybe you don't, do you view princesses as typically like a kid royalty and queen is always like the adult version? Because I doubt no. that's true. I'm assuming that there are princesses who are like in their 20s and 30s until a need for a queen arises, right? I mean, if you've heard of Princess Diana, correct? <laughs> No, maybe not actually. Wait, are you joking? I don't. I don't know. <laughs> What's she do that would make it to where I would know? Oh, I've seen pictures of this lady. What'd she do? She was the princess. Kill somebody? No, she didn't kill Damn anybody. It. She didn't do anything fun. I mean, Damn. she was see murdered by the the queen. Oh, okay. Well, I only know about the the fun stuff of the royalties. Uh, fun stuff. That's a bad way to put it. I only know anything about royalty when something tragic happens within my lifetime. Like the queen <laughs> died. I didn't really know past that anything. You know what I mean? The funniest thing that has to do with the with the royal family for me is the fact that <laughs> when the queen died, Nintendo had to delay the announcement of the game. <laughs> Tears of, of the, the kingdom. <laughs> that was funny. For yeah. us people that don't live in an area that has any kind of royalty or any kind of, uh, um, I can't think of, the, of that type of leadership right now. But regardless, when we don't have that, I don't understand the weight of it. So it feels super weird to me to hear a company be like, yeah, the, print, the, the queen died, so we're going to not talk about this game we have called tears of the kingdom but only in europe so they found out anyway like it's so weird it's like it's not like it's pre-internet and they had to wait for the next next like nintendo power they found out at the same time they just put in dot com instead of dot co on or dot uk on you know whatever it is so is it dot eu or something like that i think that might be it yeah i'm going with kratos and princess peach all right, fun. Fun indeed. All right. Well, guys, I guess it's time to play matchmaker. What two video game characters would you put in a relationship and why? Would you put them there just to watch the chaos unfold? Or would you put them there to see love blossom eternal? Nice. Or would you put them there to see them make sweet love in a La Quinta Inn? 
Oh, you tell me. <laughs> but this has been episode 293 of Triangle Squared. We hope you enjoyed it. Very different episode for us. Uh, hopefully we'll be, <laughs> who knows, man. This show just seems to continue to go off the rails is the wrong word. Uh, but this show has definitely found different footing than it once had. And that's not necessarily for the worst, by my opinion, but it's been interesting to navigate. Uh, that said, Chris, thanks for joining me as always. Look forward to hearing what you guys have to say as part of the community's take. And we'd like to remind you that you can join all these other lovely people that have become patrons by going over to patreon.com slash nartech, giving as little as a dollar per month. And you can get your name read off as well as just our eternal thanks, much like our newest patron coming back around, Mr. Mark Schutz, but also Brandon Edwards, Savoy Prime, Alex, Barry Rogers, Stingray X, It's a Send to Win, a.k.a. Sean, Aztec King, Leechion69, The Lord Corgi, Salvador Garcia, Hammond Egger, Bailey Robertson, Cypher Primus, Kyle Grimm, Rude Days 93, Kevin Bacon Bits, Christopher, Danny Villalobos, Jehudi MD, No Fate, Josh Ayers, Derek Porter, Donovan Williams, Constantly Kenny, Matthew Green, Sean Sanderud, and Steven Salazar. Thank you all. We'll see you next week. Bye, bitch.